Greetings and welcome to This Is Revolution. My name is Jean Vagelin, in for Jason Miles on this Wednesday night, where we will be discussing some of the hot topics of the moment, specifically Chinese balloons and the war in Ukraine. Now, before we begin our show and I bring on our stellar TIR crew panel, I'd like to remind people out there, if you have not, please consider liking and subscribing to our YouTube channel. And if you have the means, it is also possible to become a patron where you can join the champagne room after hours that we hold on Tuesdays and Wednesdays usually. And tomorrow night, we have an exciting show. Adolf Reed will be on the show, which is extremely exciting. And you'll be able to see him in the main show. And I believe he'll be in the champagne room where Jason will be using some very urban language. Well, with that out of the way, I would like to bring on the TIR crew. Of course, since we're discussing international affairs, who better to discuss that with, with the one, the only, Deep State Cuba. Deep State Cuba, how are you this evening? Um, I'm still deep, but a little less state. Ah, well, you know, that's unfortunate. And joining us on this exciting White Guy Wednesday, we have the angry badger of the left, C. Derek Vaughn. C. Derek Vaughn, and to all those people watching on Vaughn uh, Vlog, a big shout out to you there. Yeah. The Angly Badger Aligned Society. Yeah. Well, badgers are a cool animal. We enjoy badgers on TAI. One of my favorite animals. Well, you're you're British, right? Like um you have something badgers deeply... Exactly. Exactly. You you keep them as pets um and teach them to um bite off the noses of the French. Hmm. Well, uh that's a bit racist, but okay. Uh, we love our French comrades. Anyway, so, you do. Well, I you love do. I, I love France. I love Paris. I love. I don't like people eating snails. I think it's a bit cruel. I'm like, who the hell thought of eating those things? And then I think peasants. But you you eat blood cross- pudding. Yeah, and in fact, I had <laughs> blood pudding the other day. I managed to find a Mexican blood pudding in my local Latino store here in Springfield. It was a great moment. Yeah, it was between the um, the sections where you could buy Guatemalans and the sections you could buy Hondurans. It's oh, very, very funny. Very, very cruel. Very funny. I, actually, we are at my child's school having an international day where I will be serving people Marmite and toast so that they can be accustomed to the great British cuisine that we have. I will defend British cuisine till my dying day. It is one of the better cuisines of the world, and you I can mean, find yeah. You're doing a great patriotic service that way uh, to, because to king you and country. 100% validate the American Revolution for every student that tries it. <laughs> exactly. Oh, um, oh. Well, guys. Enough your mind is superior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't, don't, don't start with that stuff. <laughs> Let's get straight to the story. So, you know, the first thing I wanted to talk about with you guys today was this whole... Chinese balloon rigmarole. And as you can see here, we have the first pictures from over Missouri of uh, what the Chinese spy balloon has captured. I really hope that couple is getting some royalties. I, hope I mean, so. they almost certainly are not, but um, damn, they deserve it. 
I think I did a racism against Midwestern people. There you go, just so you can see it again. <laughs> That's pretty much everybody at my game store. And I, and I believe I'm approaching that size uh, these days. As 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 a proud non-Midwesterner, but as a as a big old American, um, I do have to ask you: Aren't you from Hull? Isn't that like the Midwest of England? That is, yes. People in Hull are either super fit on steroids, or they've had one too many portions of fish and chips, which okay. is a delicious another delicious British cuisine. Okay, you got me on that one. I that will give it. you credit for fish and chips. Which, of course, is actually really Portuguese Jewish cuisine, but let's not get into I mean, that. It's Sephardic, but let's go. So the Chinese balloon has been uh, causing quite a stir in the United States, and we've had ridiculous press headlines such as China using spy balloon to drum up nationalistic further, which is like... Projection much. Projection much when it comes down to what's going on with these spy balloons. So I thought... I'd start with our, you know, our resident deep state expert, Kuba. What's up with the spy balloon? Do we do we spy using weather balloons anymore? I thought we had satellites. I thought the Chinese had satellites. What is up with spy? Uh, or you could just uh, use or, Google. Or well, Google. Or people's Facebook. Or what they post on uh, Instagram. But what's up with the spy balloons? Is, is this a real thing? Do people use spy balloons still? Here's the thing. Um there are a number of celebrations in Xi Jinping's honor coming up this year, and they were rehearsing one with um, all the balloons and pyrotechnics, and it just got away from them. Um, you know, somebody was still hung over from uh, Lunar New Year, maybe. And then it drifts over the United States, but you don't want to ruin the surprise for Xi Jinping. So you tell everybody it's a spy balloon or a weather balloon. And that way, when uh, the big event comes, um, you know, he'll still have that look of delight, that childlike glee on his face that we've all come to know and love from uh, the deeply human, deeply empathetic, so relatable uh, leader of China. So spy balloons are not a thing anymore? So... The I wish I had the kind of um, intelligence apparatus where I can just contact somebody in um, Lanzhou and get the inside scoop. But um, my reading of the these events um, would be that that Chinese may have detected a vulnerability in uh, American air defenses. Um, the NORAD radar system that tracks uh, incursions over North American airspace, that's why um, one um, unidentified object was shot down over Canada by a US fighter because it's a joint, um, joint air defense area that um, the radars are extraordinarily powerful, so powerful that one major headache is false positives. Mm -hmm. You have a large enough flock of seagulls, you have certain weather phenomena, um, you have um, debris either coming down through the atmosphere or from uh, commercial aircraft. All of those things could trigger a reading um, in the air defense system. So standard 
procedures are to exclude anything that isn't um, the radar signature of a known aircraft, rocket, um, or other um, major operational vehicle. And that, if you know that information, then you could design an airship and we say balloons, but um, China has an airship program. Um, they construct different um, lighter than air vehicles, some fairly sophisticated. There's a commercial airship industry right now too, um, looking to capitalize on the move towards green forms of transportation. So we say balloons, but these could be quite sophisticated um, crafts. And um, if you understand that they're going to be excluded from um, NORAD radar um, hits, you know, um, that their signatures won't trigger a response, well, now you have a mechanism to have um, different um, listening devices, surveillance devices, uh, maybe just communications um, signals uh, loitering over important parts of the United States uh, in a way that um, the United States and NORAD might be oblivious to for very long periods of time. There's uh, something similar happened during the Cold War when uh, the United States was able to tap um, subsea communications cables mm -hmm. between um, the particular case, I think this might be from Seymour Hersh's piece, was um, a connection between Vladivostok and um, a Russian naval base on Kamchatka. Mm -hmm. American divers installed a listening device because it was thought that this area was um, basically uh, empty, that the technical difficulties of um, reaching the cable alone would make that type of operation unfeasible. It sat there for years, just collecting intelligence. They had to send a diver every once in a while to pick up the recordings, but it was an extremely successful operation. I can imagine that um, in Chinese intelligence, somebody figured out that, hey, NORAD isn't looking for balloons. We could just have this hanging out um, 10,000 feet over the commercial airlines and nobody will know it's there. Um, even if it's not collecting intelligence itself, it could be a secure relay for information that's being beamed out of the United States. Well, this is nothing <laughs> peculiar in you know, the practices of international espionage, really. I mean, one of the interesting uh, factoids I read in the press about this, that the United States have, quote unquote, discovered where these balloon bases are and one is of course Hainan Island which if people remember uh, the United States had a pilot shot down over Hainan Island so and you know compared to the intelligence capabilities that the uh, the, the United States have in terms of uh, satellite as well as other forms of uh, uh, electronic data collection um, you know this is really kind of small potatoes a normal probe in the kind of shadow jousting that great powers 
you know, engage it. And what I find most interesting is not that the Chinese might be finding a way to try and probe United States air defenses, but rather the the absolute hysterical reaction that this is pr promoted in the United States. Vaughn, do you want to do you want to perhaps chime in on that point? You know, talk about you know what this is all about. You know, that headline I put up you know, made the note that, like, this is being used by China to drum up nationalism, which may or may not be true. I don't know. Like, the Guardian never, you know, misses an opportunity to clutch out pearls. But what is this function playing in the United, in the United States and American politics? I, I like that you use the Guardian for this, because I always like to say the Guardian uh, needed America to exist, because if it didn't, it would have to invent it to justify its own bullshitting with labor. Um, but... Uh, it's to 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 really kind of break this down. Um, I have been looking. Actually, I'll hold up the book because I just happened to have it beside me. I wasn't planning on it today. Uh, at this communitarian book, Democracy's Discontent, which I've been co-aligning with different economic epochs and talking about the justification of American rule and like the way Americans justify their internal structure to themselves, uh, from civic republicanism into administrative liberalism. And now into perpetual crisis. And, and I don't know, Cuba may agree or disagree with me on this, but it seems like the American state apparatus realizes that it's lost the ability to even claim to be a neutral administrative state. So the only way things can be justified um, is basically a terror apparatus or the constant or, or the apparatus of fear, which is why this is so much part of the national discourse add to that the fact that if it bleeds it leads mentality in the media um it gets kind of complicated when all your media is national and local media is all gone so you need these kinds of stories all the time and the and the and, and the intelligence apparatus knows that and can manipulate that for you know for civic reasons. I think that's like basically true for any intelligence apparatus. And I don't think the United States is unique in this sense of constant crisis and failure being justification. I think this is like true in the West in general. Uh, places like Canada are slightly more resistant to it, although as Trudeau remains marginally unpopular, that's becoming less and less true. Um, I think that's what's driving this. I mean, this is clearly about domestic politics. We, we know spy satellites and spy balloons are probably pretty common things. And we should not be surprised or, when, when any state shoots them down. You know, that's what they sh would normally do. That's par for the course. But the fact that we've made so much hay out of this, so much that we're like, Biden's talking about a UFO commission for these things. Um indicates to me that, that this is as much about domestic politics as it is international politics. Yes, it is about international politics. Yes, there are actual security issues at bay here. I don't, I don't, I don't think this is manufactured that way, but I think it is spun in a particular way. Um, I tend to resist the leftist inclination to view the spin as preceding the event, um, which is the kind of quasi-conspiracy thinking that's often the case. But whenever something like this happens, it does seem like like fries on shit. You're gonna have 
different elements of the government trying to use it to justify things and justifying military spending is, you know, a national pastime of the, of the U S military intelligence services. Um, so, well, um, I think that the, um, part of the electoral appeal for, of Joe Biden was this whole idea of restoring the soul of America. He likes to say America's back. Um, especially, I mean, that amounts to his entire foreign policy vision. Yeah, and Blue MAGA. Yeah. the um, And a kind of, we're going to be, we're going to look after American interests, but we're also going to bring back the 90s era neoliberal righteousness. Um, in any back case. both worlds. Exactly. Um, the, uh, I don't think that there's a plan for um, a rhetorical mobilization of American nationalism, but largely because there doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. The um, particular press corps, especially the national security and the Washington-based press corps, um, loves these kinds of stories. Um, They resonate strongly with... um, both liberal and democratic establishment types, you know, PMC audiences, um, plus under conditions of this deteriorating self-confidence in the United States and an awareness that you can't actually do anything about real stuff like the Pennsylvania, um, Ohio uh, train derailment and toxic airborne event. Instead, these symbolic um, gestures towards righteousness and standing up to quote-unquote evil um, become the the main emotional payoff for caring about politics, that you're on the right side, you're one of the good guys. Um, And I think that um, when it comes to foreign policy as well, Everyone in Washington I knew when the topic came to what's the pitch that the United States has um, to its allies, to unaligned countries, to everybody else that doesn't have a kind of native-born link to American interests. Why? How are you going to convince Filipinos or um, Croatians or Lebanese or Bangladeshis that the United States should be um, the the agenda setter and leader of um, global political coordination. They always want to just boil it down to it's us or the Chinese or it's us and the Russian or the Russians. And you got to pick because um, that's the only beauty contest that the contemporary United States feels at all confident in winning. If you held the U.S. to some kind of standard for its international um, policy, if you expected some kind of progressive, appealing vision for global governance and coordination from the United States, we're just not going to get that. The only way the U.S. looks good is if you propose it as the only alternative to um, the most sinister possible readings of um, Chinese and uh, Russian geopolitics. 
And let's not forget, you know, that this is happening within the context of a serious economic conflict taking place between the United States and China over uh, high-end chip production. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this gets forgotten in, in this whole di- discourse, or at least it gets pushed to, to the back. Uh, for people who are not aware, you know, chip, chip production and specifically high-end chip production, and there was a lot of talk about this early in the Biden administration, uh, you know, has been a point of uh, conflict between first the Soviet Union and the United States, and then, of course, laterally with China. And of course, China has engaged in intellectual property theft in order to build its industry. And I just want to emphasize good here. Good for them. I don't, I, yeah, good for them. You know, that's I was about how, to say everybody does that. That's how America every, got its that's industry. That's how America too. got great. You know, like, you know, like don't you know, don't hate the player, hate the game, right? But you know, in we're seeing now the United States taking this very seriously, and because of neoliberalism and the dispersing of chip production and particular processes in chip production, you know, like now Taiwan is at the center of this because Taiwan has previously supplied particular uh, finished products to both China and America, and America is saying you got to pick one or the other. Well, and, and I think that it's important to add to that. Um, story, the political economic uh, dimension of why chip manufacturing was exported out of the United States to begin with. Right. Uh, because that's an anti-labor um, and public goods disinvestment story, as well as a story of um, cultural anti-intellectualism inside the United States. The uh, There's a perception that this was strictly an economic move, that uh, you can get cheaper skilled labor in Asia um, than in the United States. So sadly, tragically, because competitiveness, um, Intel and other chip manufacturers uh, began to invest and move processes over to China, and uh, not to China, to Taiwan, uh, South Korea, other um, Asian economies, and that shifts that uh, center of gravity but it has as much to do with the fact that the united states uh, has an inadequate public educational program um the public educational system uh there's strong biases against um excellence in uh, academics uh, across much of the united states if you look at um elite technical programs in the u.s you'll find that um it's dominated by subcultural groups and foreign um, foreign students, while the people that you socioeconomically consider to be best placed to excel in uh, those kinds of fields because they have all the resources, parental uh, networks, etc., um, they opt for. Um, completely different careers. They're pulled into finance. They stay on the business side. Uh, people don't like nerds in the U.S. And that combined with um, the hostility towards any segment of labor that can uh, command influence or a bargain from a position of relative strength because of their expertise and um, highly valuable uh, industry essential skills means that you go to Asia to break the power of the nerds that are here, and you don't have enough 
of that base of technically skilled um, specialized workers to reshore a significant amount of that manufacturing once strategic conditions have shifted. I don't know how the United States could regenerate the high-tech manufacturing that it's lost because those skills of the workforce that are essential to, to maintaining those operations um, have all gone rusty. Um, many of them have, many of those uh, the particular individuals will have retired, aged out, moved on. Um, and the United States doesn't have an educational or training apparatus to replace. Well, let uh, me, let me, let me can just I, jump. Can I, can I jump can in I, quickly, Vaughn? And then go you ahead. Mingo. I'll take Because I want to fight the Canadian brain rot a little bit. I'm going to say, firstly, I would say there is a solution for the United States, which is to just keep importing people from the developing world. And that's literally what they do. And in fact, having your tech industry uh, staffed by people with, what is it, H15 visas? H1B. H1B visas that you can control, that you can kick out the country when it's if they cause too much trouble. Healthy that stuff. is a form of uh, labor discipline. And okay. for all its faults, uh, the United States has two, you know, has an, uh, still has a kind of notion that you can get rich in this country. It's like a jackpot. You know, you can, you know, it's a roulette reel, but if you hit the jackpot, you hit really hit the jackpot and you can make yourself billions and millions. And those gains are going to going are not going to be taken away by the tax man and you're going to be scot-free to do what you like. So there is an attraction for a certain type of a certain type of striver from the developing world to come into the country. The question is, of course, and I would agree with Cooper, this is the utter the both material and cultural degrading of education in the United States, the de-skilling, not just of the mass of the population, of, of the elite as well, who don't have, you know, scientific, technical education as part of their curriculum. You know, again, you know, as a historian, I always think about one of the factors that explains the military decline of the Ottoman Empire was that elite Ottoman military education did not include mathematics in it, whereas the kind of uh, education that uh, a gentleman would re receive in Europe did include mathematics. So I, Vaughn's going to explode in a second, but let me I just really finish, am. finish my thought, is that there is, I mean, I notice it here in Springfield, that the wealthy suburb schools do not necessarily provide a stronger education because their priorities are on particular cultural prestige activities such as sports as opposed to education. But, uh, you know, so there, there's a kind of, you know, and, and this is not a blame on the teacher. I think there is a kind of, uh, a, you know, people don't want to be astronauts no more. People want to be social media influencers and stuff. And I think, I mean, Vaughn, you jump in. Tell me I'm wrong. You're not wrong, but you guys are taking the, you're seeing cultural as causal, which I always think is generally incorrect. Because the American anti-intellectualism was higher in the 50s than it is now. And we had the technical skills in the 50s. So that's not causal. Um, what I would say uh, to all this, because I think your description is true, but I think we do have to go back and be political economists about why it's true. One, the universities have every incentive to take foreign students because they pay more. Mm -hmm. um, they and and ironically, a lot of the 
diversity and inclusion initiatives have actually accelerated that because universities now see a double whammy. They can pull the best from everywhere in the world. Um, uh, generally the already rich and meet their quote diversity standards and raise uh, money intake by doing it. All right. So that's, that's a key problem here. Mm -hmm. uh, we do take the best and the brightest uh, of, of the world still. I mean, that's why there's so many Nigerians and Southeast Asians here. Um, that's also ironically proof of our racist uh, immigration system, because why are the only Africans you see super rich? Well, that's because they're the only ones we let in who aren't on refugee status. Um, uh, I, I think when it comes to, though, I, I, I don't. I don't think the U.S. is actually unique in its degrading of public institutions. And I wanted to contrast to Canada, which is unique in that it's not. Um, Canada has the seventh best education system in the world, depending on how you count it. Sometimes it's higher, even sometimes it's up to like four or five, seen as the highest three. Um, whereas all the old capitalist countries, not just the United States, but Britain and France are all clustered together towards the middle bottom. Now, I've always asked myself why that is. Like, what are the economic imperatives? Because the cultures of France, England, and the United States, yeah, they're related, but they're not the same. And I don't think the French, for example, have this cultural uh, anti-intellectualism that you see in the Americans. And yet their public schools suck about as bad. Um, so the question is why? I don't, have a, I don't have one answer as to why, except that Education is expensive because it's labor intensive and developed economies, um, particularly in the capitalist core, are really into <laughs> making easy money and low hanging fruit gains. There is no longer a, a sense of international competition for these core countries. Um, we're, I mean, yes, I guess maybe that's what they're trying to do with China, but it's not working. Um and I agree with you. We don't have the skills anymore. In fact, if anything, I think the the uh, the the left should be way more up on educational problems than they are. Uh, I was just reading today that in Chicago, fifty-five schools had not one student meeting the U.S.'s national proficiency, the U.S.'s own national proficiency in reading and, and in mathematics not one now how does that happen well let, let me just let me I just think that's let, larger than cultural issues for no let me just jump in here firstly you know when i say cultural you know the cultural material cannot be neatly disentangled from agreed from from one another obviously uh you know this cultural state of affairs has very particular material conditions for example uh, why is the elite going into finance and not science and technology? Well, that's where the money is. That's where the power is, right? Uh, that is where the social prestige is, right? Um, you know, these, you, you know, th this this culture is, of course, predicated upon a particular evolution of American uh, political economy. I, you know, like, yeah, I don't want to be saying that. Uh, I, I don't want to be misunderstood to say that this culture, uh, you know, if you're put it another way, if you're a 17 year old and you look at how you get rich, right, you can study for years and get an entry level engineering job. And it's very difficult. It's it has concepts that are hard. Uh, 
or there is an entire political economy around something like social media where it's like, oh, you can just like, you know, I don't know, do a TikTok video about how you're a sassy Latino or something like that. And that's how you get rich. It's, it's a very logical choice for people. Uh, am I going to do this thing where it's extremely hard and I risk failure and there's no, or do I do something which is, you know, again, a money shot, but it doesn't take that much effort to do, to do. I think, I think there is a fundamental political economy, uh, a problem behind this in, in the way that, you know, uh, you know, I don't think it's an accident, for example, that China freaks out about social media, right? Yeah, I don't, me, and, me either. And if um, I agree with Gene that it's hard to disentangle the cultural and the material, and I think that um, we can point to um, an entire complex of different potential causes, intermediate causes, semi-causes um, from both um, the cultural and the, the material. Um, level and one thing that i wanted to pick up on what gina was saying is if you want to if you want to make a lot of money doing something fun then yeah there's sports there's entertainment there's social media now um and these are low probability careers right yeah it's, extremely low um, exactly it's a lottery but with the degradation of um economic opportunities for um in different fields the usual trade-off that okay maybe science technology coding maybe these things are nerdy and boring and take up a lot of time when you when you could be running around being a fun young person um but reliable you know it's practically guaranteed that you can get to a comfortable material position if you pursue these professions. And they're also highly respectable. You know, right. People are impressed at dinner parties. But, but if everyone does it, they're not reliable. That is like actually a key point. Exactly. That's one. Um, without a employer of last resort, then um, the bottom can fall out of any of these fields, as many people in the tech industry are, have learned over the last few months. And when and le learn learn to code was a way to get coders to be cheaper, you yeah. dummies. When they talk about all this stuff, it's like they want to break the labor power of these uh, these elements of the workforce that are yeah, bottom. Like why can't coders be as cheap and disposable as baristas? Um, yeah, the the but, uh, civic engineers in Egypt and Mexico, which are like very common degrees, often were just the janitorial management where where i live because they've just overproduced them to such an extent i mean it was very sad because you know i was in mexico and hanging out with people who had much better educations in math and and mechanics than me um and they were just a head janitor basically and um to, and to sort of round out what i was saying if everything is a lottery right if even the tech jobs are a lottery because you don't even know whether your skill set will be one that's in demand by the time you graduate, then why not go after um, something which is least fun to do in process and doesn't require the same kind of grind and the same kind of intensity of effort? Um, and it's fact, not only it's not only tech where you're seeing this degrading; you're also seeing this. Well, it happened to doctors even, 
right? Med like, not, not just medical doctors, but also you just see it degrading in the humanities and the social sciences as well. Oh, as, it's happened to professors so long ago and so completely that it's not even a story. Yeah, we don't even think about it. Like, I was about to say, you're talking about the humanities. I'm like, what humanities? Like, no one cares if poor people get to get the mess in the arts anymore because that's what the humanities program even the, were even, for. Even the skills that the humanities used to teach are not taught anymore. You know, like, you read what an undergraduate essay looked like in 1975 and you read what an undergraduate essay looks like today. You you look at the expectations of what an undergraduate in history or politics is supposed to read, even between the time I was in university in the early 2000s and today, it's mind boggling the the kind of ex, the difference in expectations, because, you know, one of the pernicious effects of the so-called racial reckoning and uh, diversity, equity and inclusion is that instead of dealing with the problems that disadvantage poor and working class communities who are disproportionately people of color, you just lower the bar uh, so that, you know, uh, you, you, so that uni university has to become a finishing school uh, for the skills you didn't learn in high school. Right? Yeah, I have real stats on that. Like, so for example, most states have achieved 90% graduation rates. In the same time period, remedial education has quadrupled in colleges. So what that means for people who don't really understand the economics of this, you are paying for privately or semi-publicly what used to be provided to you for free in a publicly funded institution that all the public ostensibly paid for. That means that Every time we devalue the diploma, which there is a strong impetus to do, and I could go into in America, I really do know the history on this. I, it's like my research thing that isn't related to what we talk about here. But like there was a strong push for the testing apparatus when the testing apparatus started showing the faults in the American system. Americans, both right wing and left wing, started pushing against the testing apparatus, convinced people that the tapping apparatus was unfair, which it was. I actually there. Anytime you have a linguistic test, it's going to have cultural biases in it. That's that's true for any linguistic test. Um, but now we've removed any way for people to know how to even get into universities. One of the ironies of the post-COVID university is for all the talk of diversity, equity, inclusion, universities are the least economically diverse that they have been in the United States since before the GI Bill, meaning that the entire intellectual project that the war state enabled to fight the cold war i mean this was pernicious i think people need to know that like we got a lot of this good stuff because the united states was up to shenanigans but that's all been decimated and there really isn't anything to replace it nor is there any incentive for either party to do anything about it because just like there's not like the democrats will play around with college debt every now and then um, like this, and then find some way to say that it's not racially inclusive or whatever to actually do anything about it. Uh, but but then if you look at what they're what they don't want to do is they don't want to collapse the bloated administration of universities because that is a loyal voter base 
in the over 20k and the over 250k range. So rich administrators tend to be loyal Democrats. And if you fuck with actually fixing the debt system of universities, which honestly probably wouldn't be that progressive in and of itself. I mean, like Germany has free college and it's it still has the same patterns as the United States in the way colleges graduate people. The rich people just now graduate for free. I'm not saying that as an argument against free college. I'm just saying that that's not a social fix, people. Like that's not the only problem that you need. But I agree with you, Cuba. We don't have it anymore. And uh, increasingly, I don't even know that we have people that can read. Um, and that's that's not people well, think I'm picking on Zoomers about that. And it is compounded in Zoomers because they've lived with households where people don't read anymore. And that compounds literacy problems. If you don't see reading modeled, you don't do it. Um, but it's also technologically compounded because literacy has dropped in, in cohorts that were priorly literate. Um, and uh, I think that you you make a great that it's not just limited to the kind of um, high-end technical skills that you need to cut silicon wafers into, into chips. It might also be all the way down to basic skills. What typically happens is um, every layer... Um, where there's a deficiency might be able to sort of pull some people up from the layer beneath it. But one, one comment that the viewers made was that even under these conditions, the U S military struggles to hit its recruiting targets. And that has to do with the fact that you've pointed out there's such shortages in basic skills. There's shortages in physical fitness. Um, there's uh, issues around outdated restrictions. I think tattoos and marijuana are probably like a big problem, a big barrier uh, if you wanted to access a, a larger pool of young people. But um, the it may be that you have um, a lot of individuals who graduated high school. They have a piece of paper telling them they're educated. But because of deficiencies in the system, they might not even have the basic skills to be uh, line infantry. And to bring it back, the some of the first most precocious uh, social welfare systems were created out of that national security crisis where your conscript soldiers couldn't read. Therefore, you might lose a war against France and Germany. Exactly. I mean, the, some of the first social reforms were in Britain were in response to the malnutrition of British soldiers during the Boer War, for example. It's not an accident. You see the first major social reforms in Britain in the early, you know, uh, 1910s, just after, you know, this deficit had been exposed. And, you know, to, to return to Vaughn's point about, you know, uh, Brian Ankuba's point about, you know, the replacing of, let's say, standardized test examination systems, uh, with quote-unquote more equitable systems, it accelerates the kind of uh, decline of social mobility in these societies. A great example is in Britain, where, you know, there was a grammar school system uh, where you would take an exam at 11 years old, and then if you were smart and 
academically orientated, you would go to a grammar school. And if you were the rest, you would go to a secondary modern school. And the outcome of that was that smart working class kids could get a high quality academic education and, you know, uh, rise up the social ranks of society. In the 1970s, the move towards comprehensive education, which was accelerated by Margaret Thatcher during her tenure as education minister, basically created a system where the middle class no longer sent their kids to the grammar schools, but opted out and sent them to private schools. And the state system began to decline and deteriorate. And yeah. this is what's happening in the United States as well. You know, the homeschool movement, you know, the degrading of public school, uh, its transformation from a public good into uh, a safety net, as it were, is, you know, you know, accelerating this kind of degrading of uh, education. And, you know, when the only thing at present that would even perhaps remotely uh, reverse this trend is perhaps a new Cold War, ironically, because it will create an impetus uh, for competition, which is a very scary prospect, to be honest, because if that's, you know, under the current political configuration, if that's the only way that we might have some kind of return to redistributive policies and, uh, you know, social mobility, then what does that tell us about our system? A system that can, that can only survive through crisis. And that is, you know, that's scary. And, you know, what this new conflict... Hey, look on the bright side. China may just win. China may just win. I mean, you, you go to, you look at a country like Iran, they have the highest number of engineers because those guys got to build that nuclear bomb fast if they don't want to get uh, uh, get regime changed. Yeah, although, you know, I, I'm not the to, to the biggest Peter Zion fan in the world, but I do think he's pointed out two things that I think is very interesting that's correct. One is that uh, the United States narrative on China is like schizophrenic, including his own. Um, because on one hand, it's the most dangerous thing ever. On, other, on the other hand, it has a demographic bomb on which it's going to have to reverse a, a centuries-long trend of not having mass internal, actually several centuries-long trend, of not ma having mass immigration inward. China has not had a history of mass immigration inward, except for when the Mongols and the Manchus invaded. Um, and so, the Yeah, but, but, you know, people who took over the imperial government. But, but in general, that's not been the case. Um, I think it could be the case, um, but but we're not seeing it yet. I mean, so I don't know. Um, I have often said that while a lot of socialist projections upon China seem to be either xenophobic or they are like their fantasy projections <laughs> about, you know, some great leader who's going to save them all. Um, in reality, I, I've seen China as the most responsible um, uh state in the capitalist world system with a couple of exceptions one of them is they do have a demographic gong that's about to that is about to slowly go off and it is one on a scale in which we have not seen before we have not had a peaceful loss of that much of the population of a of a society that large in human history there isn't one i mean i mean the, the, the china is in a very precarious situation because you know, their position in the world, you know, people will debate till the cows come home. Is China state capitalist? Is it a socialist state? Is it a deformed worker state? You know, whatever. 
what is a kind of fundamental truth about China's position is that the growth of the Chinese economy, the development of the Chinese economy was predicated on the integration of China into the global capitalist system. And Chinese wealth and development is both a precondition for neoliberalism in the West, because it allowed an outsourcing of technical and uh, labor-intensive industries on a scale that had been hitherto unimaginable. Uh, but it creates a kind of codependency that did not exist, for example, with the Soviet Union and the United States, which by the end of the Soviet Union, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it was like largely relying on petrochemical exports and arms exports. I mean, the, the economy that Russia has now came about at the, after the 1960s in the Soviet Union. Like that's, so, there's so, a continuity there, actually. There's a, so the, so the, fundamental, uh, the fundamental issue for the Chinese is that they have to, they are dependent on international capital, right? And the authority of the Chinese Communist Party is precarious in that there are various social forces in China. And, you know, yeah, they can shoot Jack Ma or disappear, but what, can they shoot all the Chinese capitalists? You know, no. There's more billion. There's more billionaires in China than there is in the United States. Like, yeah, but um, there's more people in China too. Yes, there is. But the, the, also, the in, idea in a system like China's billionaire is a job title, right? Like if right. they don't like you, they'll find a new billionaire. Um, and except when it comes to the international market, where they still have to bend down, like they cannot they still cannot dictate terms to the international market. I mean, the, no one dictates, no one can dictate terms to the international market and bingo, uh, not even the U S no. Yes. And the, um, yeah, I mean, go ahead. Kibbutz, but sorry. The idea of that level of, um, autonomous power vested in a single national government is fanciful. The, there mm -hmm. are always external constraints, whether material or other social forces, that will limit um, the autocracy available to any given leader um, or any party in any system. Um, and there might be a trade-off, actually. Like, um, Kim Jong-un can do anything he wants in North Korea, but one consequence of that is that he's severely constrained um attempting to do anything else um uh, anything outside of um north korea i mean, well, yeah. I mean we should talk about the ukraine war in this context though because one yes. thing that i i think we we all agree on here um is that china did not see the ukraine war leading to the geopolitical consequences that it did Ch it is clear from from chinese public statements if we are to trust them and we can't, I, I'm not into criminology with, with uh, Chinese characteristics. So I don't know what the Chinese leadership really thinks, but they did signal that they thought Europe would be more receptive to them than it was. Um, they also seem to have hoped that they would have more time to build out the Belt and Road Initiative before having sovereign debt issues in, in peripheral countries like Sri Lanka, 
um, and running into problems with development in Central Asia that has really hampered internally to the Chinese. Like this, I do know we can speak because there's like debates about it in China daily about whether or not they think, you know, the super Keynesian road that they were trying to take with the Belt and Road Initiative, which was an attempt to build an alternative international capitalism. Whether or not you think China is capitalist or not is irrelevant to that, that was what they were trying to do. And to do it without gunboat diplomacy, which is really admirable. Like, that's an admirable goal. Um, it doesn't seem to be on the immediate horizon right now, both domestically and really. Um, China doesn't want to start being the IMF either. Well, so, and let me, let, let me add on to that as well. You know, as much as the Chinese may enjoy seeing or may be happy to see an American ally get the boot in, there is a countervailing force that the Chinese are very conservative when it comes to the readjustment of international frontiers and the destabilization of, uh, you know, separatist regions. You know, the Chinese are very concerned about territorial integrity. And while there may be geopolitical payoffs for the Chinese, uh, for, you know, integrating Russia into their economic sphere, on the flip side, the international precedent set by attempts to uh, annex territory or create breakaway republics is something that I think the Chinese are very uh, sensitive about. They're very sensitive. China has a long history, uh, the century of humiliation, where Chinese sovereignty was violated and uh, territories were carved off and warlords existed. This is not something that they would, that they necessarily would leap enjoy to see as being set as an international precedent because they think long term. They're like, well, um, go ahead, Google. I do, I, I do have some thoughts there. One is that China is also um, the country that conducted its own unethical unilateral land grab on um, border passes in the Himalayas from Pakistan and India. Um, the China has no, the People's Republic has no compunctions about um, visible hypocrisy between um, its own claims to um, how the international system should operate and what it actually does. Um, so I think that you're right, that in principle, these kinds of, you know, to enshrine um, the right of separatist regions to pursue independence would be very uncomfortable for China. But at this point, it's developing its own counter tradition of ignoring everything that the every international president it doesn't there, like. There is a difference between seizing some border passes and establishing a breakaway republic, though. At least it's possible to create that kind of division in your mind between a minor border dispute and setting up an autonomous republic on the sovereign territory of another uh, nation uh, nation state. I think there's extents to it. I mean, everybody's hypo hypocritical, hypocritical in international. And also threat. consider the the dismissal that China has of uh, international uh, law and mediation over things like the South China uh, maritime claims. Sure. So, I. I think that 
it is true that all things being equal don't support separatism, don't legitimize separatism. But um, I also think that, especially in periods we might call kinetic, where stuff is happening and outcomes um, of small contests matter a great deal, um, the emphasis appropriately in their geopolitical view shifts from the war of position where you're trying to um, establish precedents and patterns of behavior that um, favor your geopolitical position to uh, the war of maneuver where no we just gotta we have these things have to work out in a way that's conducive to our interest and it doesn't matter what we have to say or do um so I, you go ahead finish and your i think that that's the same place that russia's at um right now uh, with uh, the, the war in ukraine the, that is far too consequential uh, to um subordinate to second order preferences okay so i wanted to turn now to uh to talk a little bit about the war in ukraine we're heading rapidly towards the first anniversary of this war and you know before we really get into the weeds on this i've got to bring this up how america took out the nordstrom pipeline so um seymour hirsch well-known uh well-known journalist for variety of different reasons including the milai massacre if i'm uh, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, um, came out with this piece on his Substack, um, uh, arguing that sources have indicated that the United States took out the Nord Stream pipeline from Russia, which was a quote-unquote mysterious thing. I mean, like my personal opinion is, like you know, I don't think the reporting in this article is super convincing, but you know, at the end of the day, who else would have done it? Like, I just, I just can't think for the life of me. It's like, come on. Like, do you? you I know, think it was the Kuwaitis. Oh, it was the Kuwaitis. It could have been, it could have, oh, there you go. There's a conspiracy theory for us right now. I mean, uh, any thoughts on this, this uh, story? People are going around saying it's gospel. And, you know, I think the balance of circumstantial evidence uh, certainly kind of indicates that the United States may have done this, or, but I don't think we've yet got the smoking gun. Vaughn, any thoughts? So on one hand, uh, there's, there's, there, I know people are going to think I'm, I'm, I'm cutting the baby in half on this. Um, Cyhorse's art, art, article has one source. Um, we don't know much about that source. Um, so on, on that, that's kind of a problem. However, it is backed up by what we've seen from that German inquiry into whether or not Russia was behind the Nord Stream bombing. And the Swedish inquiry. And the, Swed yeah, the Swedish inquiry, excuse me. Um, and and also, um, Cy Hurst has a mixed history on breaking news. Mostly good, but there have been many things that he has for certain said was going to happen, like a war with Iran over and over and over again that did not. Um, one of the things that actually makes me take him more seriously, though, is uh, when I looked at how the press was responding to this, they just quoted Biden saying that it's a total, that it's a lie and not anything else. They didn't even mention the, the, the Swedish inquiry. 
um, and then went and recited his CV. So the U.S. press didn't even, like didn't even the, like Reuters, AP. They they really didn't have a counter to it other than just repeating what the White House said, and they didn't seem to have any interest in investigative reporting to find out if what Cyhurst said is true, one way or the other. I did not need Cyhurst to tell me that it was an American op because Radek Sikorsky told me that the day it happened. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. The polls blabbered it. One poll. One the, particular the, the husband poll. of a the husband of a well-known neoconservative operative. Yeah, uh, no, they're um, yeah, 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 well-known neoconservative. Uh, the truth is that they're both neoconservatives and neoliberals. So sometimes yeah. that gets me mixed up. But um, truly, we live in the best of all possible worlds. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I sus- I've suspected that if at least been formally, like my my suspicion is there might be some plausible deniability to direct U.S. involvement if we actually ever find out what the Yeah, maybe Compop wasn't told, you know. Maybe, right. maybe, maybe by, they, they were like, let's not wake up Biden up in his afternoon Oh, now. my God, they're going to throw the Norwegians under the bus. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, <laughs> find, this like, is some... a rogue, war-mongering, you know, group it's of like, Norwegian war criminals. It's, but like, it, it's, the most, it's the most, like, obvious thing, you know, like, the surprising thing would be if it was anyone else but the Americans, like what, who else would do it, you know? And, you know, yeah, we haven't got the smoking gun, but I'll bet we'll get the smoking gun in 20 years when they, when it, when there's a movie about how like awesome this operation was and how it was the turning point in the Charlie Wilson's pipeline, Charlie Wilson's pipeline. Exactly. It's, it's just it's like, honestly, I swear to God, sometimes they think people are stupid. Well, I think a lot, I mean, a bit, I mean, obviously, they can't admit that they did it openly, but like, come on, who are they kidding? Um, however, there, when we talk about this, we should, oh, there's, there we go, we've got the real culprit, Greta Thunberg. There we go. (laughs) When we talk about this, we should very, we should be very careful about how we talk about it, and in general, the left. And people in general, actually, this is not just a left-wing problem. Um, uh, they will take any um, epistemic hedging our our points of, uh, you know, this or that, and their counterpoints are generally, frankly, superficial. Um, we really don't know what happened. We can just pretty much guess, given likely evidence that... Um, I feel I feel better about saying that we could rule out Russia than I do about saying we know who did it. Um, could have been could have been it could have been MI six for all we know. Look, but the, the thing is, it could have been um, somebody who was smoking in the wrong place, and then exactly. there was a, a very complicated chain of events, and um, it led to the depressurization of a strategically important load bearing sandwich that collapsed a stack of highly flammable um, drums of, of vinyl chloride. And then Ooh. a rat ran through the, the puddle. And after that, that wouldn't be a very good movie, Kuba. That would not be a very good movie. That would be a good great YouTube children's video. book, actually. Great, great children's YouTube, book. Great children. We should. That's the that's the children's book we should like. That's how the TR Char- children's book. Char- how Charlie the Rat blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. 
by chewing through the wrong wire. I mean, you know, like as Vaughn says, this is one of the problems with quote unquote anti-imperialism in general is that there is, you know, a notion that like, it's, you know, that you just invert whatever the Americans say, and that must be the truth. But the reality is the, the, the imperialists will tell you the truth. They'll just tell you the truth that's convenient for them to tell you at that moment, right? Uh, being a yeah, kind the, the fact that uh, official spokesman for a security apparatus um, makes a statement contains no information as to the accuracy of that statement. Yep. Chris, All you, the I only information to... is that this is information that they want you to believe. But mm -hmm. everything else is um, still unknown. You should always ask, why are they telling me this? And why are they telling me it now? Now, Chris wants to know, Chris Morlock, my dear, dear Marxist-Leninist friend from Twitter, he wants to know, can you ask Jean? Uh, can, uh, Jean can ask your MI6 friends about what happened. My MI6 friends, unfortunately, do not invite me to the party anymore because um, I made a faux pas with the foie gras, I was not, I did not use the correct fork at a high table. And so I have been permanently excluded from the get togethers that we all engage in at Spy College. Sorry about that, Chris, but uh, maybe, maybe someone will tell me something over a beer. Where's Barrier when you fucking need him? Oh, um. <laughs> Well, so, um, yeah, so, like, the whole Nord Stream thing, it's just, like, it seems like a kind of, I mean, there's always this off chance that some somebody else did it, but, like, whatever, man, like. I, I have less difficulty believing that it was a highly unpredictable, implausible, um, right, like, Dirk Gently-style accident than it was actually some, somebody other than, the United uh, a state actor, yeah. unaffiliated it's just, it's a, with the with the NATO effort. Yeah, it just seems uh, it just seems to beg a belief that you know, like the mainstream press can't even seem to entertain this, even though the even though, like you said, on the day of the event, and Applebaum's uh, a uh, and for Chris, a fellow uh, alumni of St. Antony's College, um, her husband blabbered it right. You know, former um, Minister of Defense. Of Poland. Poland, yeah, somebody who's going to know that kind of information, and they freaking blabbered it. So, yeah, I thought the polls did it personally. Well, yeah, maybe the polls, <laughs> maybe, maybe the polls did do it. We're not, we're not good swimmers. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> not since the Great North War, Cuba. Not since the Great North War. So, I don't. Let's hold you personally responsible for all of the Polish Empire's actions, my friend. Yeah. So let's 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 turn to this other headline that. Uh, came up in the Washington Post, the liberal paper of record, U.S. warns Ukraine it faced pivotal war moment in war. So, you know, winter is chugging on and, you know, things have been pretty slow. It's not the, it's not the well-known war season, uh, but there is a lot of, uh, a lot of discussion about, uh, tanks being supplied to Ukraine. But of course, you know, obviously it takes time for those things to be, uh, have people trained on them and things like that. It's not just you deliver a bunch of tanks to Kiev and next minute, you know, they're on the front lines. Ukraine is asking for more weapons, including, you know, 
uh, F-16 fighters, or at least the Polish MiGs. I still they, they still might want the Polish MiGs. What are your thoughts on this uh, on this conflict? Because I don't think it's turned out how anyone on any side really predicted. Uh, you know, we've we kind of seem to be in a stalemate. There was a lot of rah rahing that Ukraine was going to, you know, take back everything, including the Crimea, and Russia would be chased out of the country. But you know, the Ukrainians are making noises about them about to be in a difficult situation because you know winter's approach has come. As anyone who knows the geography of the region, it's not prime fighting season, and uh, we're at a stalemate. But spring will come, and that is the time for expect. Uh, you know, springtime is the time for offenses. Can I can I run something and then turn it over to Cuba because I think Cuba knows more about this than me. Frankly, um, I have been playing with the idea that NATO wanted in the beginning Ukraine to basically be white person's Afghanistan. And to uh, to try to sucker Russia into a long protracted fourth generation style warfare. What seems to have happened, however, is we've given the Ukrainians enough weapons that it's not a fourth generation style warfare. And that actually messes up NATO planning. Um, and now this is all supposition. I'm going to go ahead and say I can't know any of this, but it was like things that the US was and and NATO was doing actually even more Europe made more sense to me if that was the the intended outcome was to turn you know um Ukraine into a slow breed quagmire um and uh basically bait Putin into throwing the first punch um which he did um but now it, it really does seem like um, they're afraid that we don't have enough munitions uh, or we don't have enough munitions and keep enough for ourselves for our actual defense. Um, and there's a real threat that this could bleed over into an actual multinational conflict instead of a proxy multinational conflict. And we all know that the threat escalation with that, you know, almost under every model that ends up in a nuclear war. Um, and pretty much nobody wins under most models in that regard. Um, so what, what do you think that is? I know, I know you also think it may be domestic political reasons with like, uh, the, with maybe the Pentagon trying to make sure that the debt ceiling doesn't get exploded. We can, we can talk about um, the article and we can talk about the war, but those are two different things. Okay, let's start with the article. So what's this article? What What, what is being signaled by this article that I quoted? I'll put up, up on the screen again. U.S. Uh, warns Ukraine it faced a pivotal moment in war. So my reading of the article, uh, just to summarize it first, um, it leads with a bunch of official announcements from um, the Biden White House um, to um, Zelensky and the Ukrainian leadership that um, it will be challenging to maintain the level of support that um, Ukraine 
currently enjoys, let alone increasing the um, the amount of munitions or weapons or uh, increasing the, the kind of support offered. So Zelensky, do something, right? Like this is, it's not going to get better than this. You got to, you got to figure it out. Um, and the subtext is that the Republican um, Congress following the midterm elections, they're going to be the spoiler. And the debt ceiling, for instance, is one place where uh, there could very well be significant brinksmanship that grinds down the operation of um, the U.S. state. And personally, I think that the Ukrainian war is so popular among all of the different factions that are incumbent inside the security apparatus, including those that are dominated by conservatives, that everybody wants to keep it going. Um, and it's just a matter of getting the political kabuki right. So Republicans can have their budgetary showdown. Um, Democrats can have their principled opposition. Um, but the show will go on. That's my reading. And let me add to this. I think, you know, the Republicans are to a certain extent split on this issue. You know, I deal with a lot of Republicans here. You have your military veteran, neoconservative types who are very much down with Ukraine and they want to fight both China and Russia at the same time. And then you have these populists who are, you know, who are, let's focus on China. Why are we messing with Russia? We baited uh, Russia into it. I think what's most interesting is that this war feeds in, and I've said this before, into the narrative that the Democratic Party uses to tie both its foreign policy and its domestic uh, political agenda together. Quote, unquote, anti-fascism is the, and, and Putin as the bo boogeyman of this anti-fascism is a through line between a, a kind of more militaristic foreign policy and also he's the same shadow puppeteer behind you know the rise of the populist right or or, or elements on, on on the left that are, are anti-war so this this kind of anti-russian quote-unquote anti-fascism really kind of solidifies a, a, a it really provides kind of like a very neatly wrapped narrative with which the Democratic Party can package both its internal and external uh, policy and can lock stock bring a significant pro a portion of the progressive to so social democratic left into supporting uh, supporting continuing arms to the Ukraine. I never thought that it could happen to me, but I met this one arms contractor and he just opened my eyes to um, what it really means to be anti-fascist exactly you know you know we're, we're, we're in ukraine i mean we're in ukraine you know we're in ukraine fighting anti-fascism with the we're, so that with, they can have pride parades and um and so that we can have statues in honor of the intellectual inheritors of the people who massacred Poles in Lvov 
in you know 1940. Well, we're definitely white enough to do so that the Poles can arm the descendants of the people who massacred Poles in Lviv in uh, 1940. Can you know? I I uh, I think the world would be greatly improved if we got over our World War II obsession. Um, uh, by that I mean. The- Quit pretending that all these categories are applicable now, both domestically and internationally. Um, I, I I cannot tell you the amount of hot air I've seen spent on whether or not something is authoritarian or fascist uh, on the online left. Uh, count, you know, this is that argument. Um, but it serves a function, Vaughn. It serves a function of self-justification. Once something is declared yeah. fascism, uh, and this pro- this this is true for both uh, those who are uh, supportive of Russia and those who are supportive of Ukraine. Once the enemy is declared fascist, then your support for your side, whichever you pick, whether you like the Banderas or you like, you know, uh, Wagner group. The Wagner group, yeah. Yeah, whether you like which side, you've justified it because the enemy they are fighting is fascism. Exactly. No more justification needed. Why do you need to justify anything anymore? And that's why, I mean, it serves that function. Well, this is, you know, this is my larger larger point about the theories of, of, of internal U.S. justification. But I think we see this worldwide because one of the things I've been surprised about is as much as we picked up the pro pride stuff, it is also clear that that in Russian internal propaganda, they have picked up anti like and, and and trust me that I do not believe that Putin really thinks the LGBT agenda is a threat to his way of life. Um, Only Rod he, Dreher believes that. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, I just he blabber know. too much. He blabbers too much. I mean, you know, it really comes down, you know, at the end of the day, you know. You know why Russia went into Ukraine, there was like very obvious geopolitical reasons for that. I mean, like Mm -hmm. nobody calls you a Hitler apologist when you're at school. And one of the reasons you put down for the second world war is that the victorious powers in the first world war imposed a very harsh treaty on, on on Germany, which laid the foundations for a militaristic and expansionist and revanchist Germany. That seems like a very obvious thing about what happened in Russia following the end of the Soviet union created the perfect geopolitical situations for uh, this kind of revanchism. At the same time, you can't blame Ukrainians for being kind of pissed off that their country is uh, is at war. It's like, how dare they not want to, you know, like be, you know. Yeah. How? Why won't these Ukrainians well, sacrifice just, themselves on the altar of appropriate realpolitik? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, mean, I think we have to. I, I, I'm honestly, you know, maybe I'm responding to to comments um, that are being made in the chat. I don't know. Um, my internal my internal catalog just goes off as like I'm tired of hearing all your moralizing bullshit because all this is justifications for different parts of the status quo. And I, frankly, pro and anti-Ukrainian left narratives tend to also be moral arguments not geopolitical ones. Um, and what I mean by that is, yes, the, the case against United States and native imperialism is, is, is definitely real and strong. Um, but the other arguments proffered tend to be somewhat facile and not looking at material realities that well, such as the idea that you're going to have a mega bricks emerge out of this when India is at, is, is explicitly hostile to China. Um, 
even though they both are technically supporting Russia right now. Um, that the, these kinds of narratives obscure any understanding of what is probably going on. And I kind of think when you talk about geopolitics, because we're dealing with states, you kind of have to think like a sociopath because states don't really have moral compasses. Um, and as socialists, why should we have, or, you know, why do we, why should we expect have, that they would, why should we expect that they would have, uh, you know, would have like, the only countries that have behaved responsibly, to be honest, are places like China and Brazil in the correct, of the conflict. absolutely correct. They, they've, you know, like, you know, my position has been and always has been, you know, like, I don't really want to, uh, you know, I don't pick a side because I don't think it's a. I don't think the left is relevant enough to even like have a side to pick. And our opinion I don't doesn't see, matter. Our opinion doesn't matter, and also, I don't see a good outcome either way. You know, at the end of the day, the Ukrainians are screwed either way. You know, whoever wins this conflict, they're, they're going to become, you know, mm. if, if Ukraine is partitioned. I, you know, I have a, I've got an idea. Go ahead. Both Ukrainians and Russians submit to Islam. Now that, is a, that, that is, that is the gold return. Let's bring back the golden horde and let's, let's, let's return to that. Yeah. Thing. But like the Russian idea of or Russian Khan. The idea of the super breaks is problematic because all those countries within these super breaks are also competing with one another in an anarchic, uh, you know, like India is not worried about the United States. They're worried about China. Right. Uh, Pakistan is not worried about the United States as much as it's worried about India. And from their perspectives, they have far more intense geopolitical uh, rivalries. And, you know, like from the outcomes of this war, what has it done? I mean, it certainly seems to have uh, revivified NATO, which seemed to have been, you know, increasingly be qu being questioned, not just, you know, on the irrelevant left, but even by people within the political establishment about, you know, what is the function of it's, you know, breathed new life into this organization. And, you know, I'm terrified to see a remilitarization of Europe. The Poles are already arming themselves to the teeth. And, you know, I think it's going to be a, you know, I think it's going to be, uh, it's just not good. It's like oh, the very, intensification very of these vi violent, of these conflicts is just not a good thing. And if you're a small country on the edge of Russia, well, your population is going to be a bit worried about Russian expansionism. Much more so than they're going to be worried about the implications of world systems theory or... Um, the... Or whatever fantasy you have about this being 20-dimensional chess that will lead to the eventual victory of international... Uh, Precisely. Social. They're, they're that... not worried... Well, I mean, the other thing is, is these notions of... Uh... If you think you can base your monetary sovereignty theory uh, on an imperial model and also be anti-imperial, you are a fool. But and, um, go ahead. I wanted to get back to what you were saying about uh, NATO wanting to lure Russia into a fourth-gen conflict, turning it, turning Ukraine mm -hmm. into Afghanistan for white people. Um, I think that you're giving NATO too much credit, much too much credit. Yeah. The um, foreign policy 
defense and security bureaucracies are um, very partitioned. They don't collaborate well with one another. They don't collaborate very well with political leadership and they'll pursue, uh, for instance, the Pentagon has two or three um, offices for what we call geopolitical assessment. And it has a gajillion that just figure out how to get fuel from point A to point B. Um, operations dwarf strategy. And strategy is frequently uh, an afterthought that sits on a shelf until events develop that suddenly it's like, oh, what are we supposed to do in this situation? Um, go get manual 4C. And I think that um, you before this this whole conflict, before the, the Maidan Revolution, the there was a very short-term specific goal, which was don't let Russia um, turn Ukraine into Belarus. That was it. Let's find every possible way, every single strategy that we can to um, destabilize um, the possibility of a pro-Russian Ukraine. And we'll get the Europeans to offer them uh, a path to EU accession. We'll work with the far right to create um, to create uh, protests and, and uh, radical conditions. We'll sponsor gay pride parades, whatever. We'll do everything because the possibility of a, a Russian success was real. And all of these things seem to be um, relatively small bore. And then all of them bear fruit at once. You're in a new reality and you don't know what to do. At that point, it's very easy for the B team of the Heritage Foundation to come out and it's like, oh, we've been thinking about this for, for decades. This is how, this is how you tame the bear. Um, and they dust off uh, University of Chicago master's thesis from 1994. Um, and you work with that based on your own bureaucratic objectives, your personal ambitions, et cetera, et cetera. And out of those, all of that tacking and bureaucratic fog, you end up with something that looks like a policy. And the and the it's it, you know it's it's the same problem with people who think that the United States uh, invaded Iraq deliberately to create a civil war in Iraq. It's like no, their plan was to you like have a like they had a fantasy delusion about what they could do in Iraq, and their plan was to use that as a freaking base of operations to launch operations against other countries in the Middle East. You can't do that if there's a bloody civil war taking place there, can you? They got bogged down with their own hubris. People overestimate the competence and unity of purpose that state apparatuses operate with. If you've been in any bureaucratic organization, you know this. The state is just that on a bigger, uh, a, a bigger scale with vying factions. And, uh, and, and a lot of the time, it's just people looking to get a payday, you know? So, uh, so I mean, my, my general responses and a lot of left commentary that I see right now is is that there is an assumption of competence on all sides that I don't think is warranted. Like the, like the, the, the most, the only actor I've seen be 
strategically competent most of the time in the last decade has been China. And even it has hit pretty hard walls. Um, and I think, frankly, for people who are politically disempowered and have nothing but sports talk to, to relay themselves to, and that was mentioned in chat, but I think it's actually apt on, on, uh, unironically. Um, this is a form of entertainment to which they can have moral discourses. Now, I also think the, 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 the idea that because morality is a part of a political ethic, that states act morally is something that there is no historical backing for. There are, we don't, I don't have a lot of things where I'm like, oh, we have a morally acting state that acted according to its own political ethic internally. I have no evidence that that oh, has and, ever and, existed. <laughs> like, and often, often we default to giving the moral high ground to whoever is the loser. Yeah. But functionally, uh, for instance, in the Melian um, discourse, the, yep. it's, um, the Melians and the Athenians and the Melians are like, please don't enslave us for no reason. And the Athenians are, no. Um, you feel for the Melians not because they are represent a particularly eth um, ethical system. Um, as Hellenistic Greeks, they almost certainly practiced slavery. Like, why would we assume that they're so great? But they are just the losers and we sympathize, um, but turning that instinct of sympathy for the suffering of others into some kind of moral groundwork is, you're just going to be very frustrated and disappointed all the time because it, it, it is Which not is why people tend of, to project it on states they don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, like, yeah, like the, like, you know, Russia for us, for example, you know, after 2014, they hastened, whether intentionally or not, uh, the slide of the Ukraine towards the West by upsetting the balance of power in the country, by annexing or, or uh, pro-Russian regions of the country. The electoral balance in the country swung decisively in favor of the West of the country, which is historically m more you know, anti-Russian and pro uh, integration with Western Even Europe. No one had changed their mind as a result of the annexations, which are going to piss off some Ukrainians that um, might have been swing voters in other cases. But even putting that aside, just the demographic shift guarantees that you're going to have pro-Western uh, governments in Kiev. I mean, it, ironically, you know, the 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 separatist republics actually weirdly ensure that, right? Like they have pulled out a lot of the more pro-Russian elements to them. And naturally it makes total sense. I, I don't blame anyone if they were, if they felt that the Ukrainian population was hostile to them for heading over to the Donbass. Uh, but that does mean that, that it is a feedback loop. That means that Kiev's going to be more and more uh, pro, pro Western, pro ethnic Ukrainian, pro even Banderist. And, and, um, it's it's an irony that I think isn't lost on uh, anyone who has observed this over a long period of time. And I've been following this since like 2004. 
since like I've been an adult. Actually, most of my adult life, I feel like, oh, something's about to happen in Ukraine. Someone's up to shenanigans in Ukraine. Let's go see what's politically happening in Ukraine. What oligarchs are being propped up by whom? So we like and just great geopolitical like clusterfuck that really fucked a lot of people over. I mean, there's 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 no way around that. Um, and it it is very clear that there is a sense of containment going on here. Um, but containment for what? I mean, I don't know. I mean, part of me thinks like the really cynical part of me is like, well, part of why we can't get rid of this is because it's a great for American weapons contractors because it's a war that doesn't involve any internal backlash i mean that's why it's so easy i mean that's why it's so easy to get liberals to back it um is because almost no americans are directly involved they're not directly involved and they like have a totally deluded notion of you know what who 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 is fighting on the ground right it also from the perspective of u.s media consumers it's a football game right? right Zelensky's the quarterback We've got the blue and gold roll on you, golden Cossacks. Um, the and the bad guy, right? Like such an excellent heel, right? Yeah, I mean that's that what it. That's U.S. Rival. U.S. politics loves you know a a goodie and a baddie, right? You know but that's also that, true for the dissenters in U.S. politics. That's yeah. true for the dissenters as well. That's been my point. It's like. Uh, you have to create a binary and then you end up making arguments for one side or the other. And it's a sports game. And, you know, at the end of the day, nobody wins, nobody wins from this war. I just don't see, I just don't see any advantage to this. And I, you know, my position has always been whatever calls for de-escalation, you know, you know, whenever any kind of de-escalation and negotiation is a good thing and a positive thing, something that can ratchet down the tension in our existing uh, political uh, system. Now, I realize there's people out there who have some kind of theories about what this will mean uh, for future geopolitics, but, you know, that's not how things work. I just don't think that's how things have worked uh, historically. And I don't, well, to, to you know, let's uh, use some Hegelian terminology, like, the problem with anti-imperialism, I think, sometimes is that it's just a negation of the pro-imperialist argument. It's not a sublation of, of, of that argument. Marx wasn't given a shit about who won in the Franco-Prussian War. Like, he was like, well, whatever's going to benefit the working class. Uh, what's going to happen to Ukraine after this is pretty predictable. Shock economic therapy uh, and, uh, you know, their workforce will become cheap laborers for the rest of Europe. That's pretty fucking sad. Situation. Yeah. That will be their reward for result. Uh, or I mean, or the other way around, they'll become you know. Or the other, you know, it's hard to imagine um, any outcome where Ukrainian civil society has a whole lot left in it uh, uh, that isn't propped up and, and taken advantage of by some parasite or another. Um, and I mean, all that stuff with, with uh, this, this is absolutely real. Shock doctrinists go on conflict like flies on shit, just like, you know, intelligence things that they're, that's what they exist to be attracted to, right? Like as soon as there's a, a crisis, even better if they don't manufacture it. Although this one, this one is a series of crises of which 
of which the West has definitely played a hand. Um, it is, I think, oversimple to think the West has been determining all of it, uh, you know, um, but I, I'm not going to persuade anyone who thinks that anyone who disagrees with them is somehow of a, of a class background that they're not either. Um, so what you going to do? I mean, you know, um, it's in some ways I worry about talking about this the way we're talking about it because it encourages these kinds of sports conversations between people who do not have the languages or context to know what the fuck they are talking about. And if we had a responsible political actor and we had a party, they would shut up. So I, I need to get going, but I wanted to pick up on something that Gene said because I really think that it sums it up. The question right now shouldn't be how to win the war for either side, but how to end the war as quickly as possible with the lowest possible loss of life and future human misery. Diplomacy and some kind of negotiated settlement are the only plausible outcomes which don't involve a, a catastrophic human toll. And that's what should be the goal of any political actor um, that even aspires to um, responsibility. So let's end the war. Let's, for the love of God, just sign a, sign a deal and get everybody home. Yeah. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, I just don't know that I see that on the horizon. I wish I did. It seems to it seemed to have got to a point where this war is kind of sustain self sustaining, and I guess we'll yeah, see which is a horrible point because that that's a point where things can spin out of control really really fast. Yeah, yeah exactly. So Cuba has to get going. Do you want to stick around for the five ten, Yvonne? Sure, whatever. There we go. So, good night, Cuba. I am out. You are out. There we go. So Cuba has. Uh, Cuba has gone. Well, you know, I think this is a pretty depressing conversation, but I did want to finish on some, you know, I don't know your thoughts, you know, the some of the problems uh, that this war is bringing out within the American left. Um, what it what I have said about this, and I think it really, uh, really gets solidified every time I talk about it, which is why I don't that often, is that... You're, you're in a safe space, Vaughn. You're in a safe space. Um, there's no such thing as a safe space. I don't believe in safe spaces. And if anything, if you're in a room with me, you're not in a safe space. Um, but um, the the way in which we have attached a political agency to things in which we can't affect there, there like, like we could maybe affect advocating for a peace policy if people were willing to actively go against the Democrats. Um, but until there is a large enough group willing to do that and it's organized, our moral opinions and conjecture about these kinds of events 
are just that. And they're worth about as much as the air they're printed on, which is a lot if you need the air, but nothing if you don't. So in that sense, it leads it leads to people not dealing with the crisis of the fact that the U.S. left, uh, even on foreign policy, doesn't like, for example, um, what would it look like to incorporate a left that that really did allow Latin America to start developing on its own and how, what kind of policies would they advocate for that? Mm -hmm. And how would you even prove good faith for that? Because there's many reasons why no one in Latin America would ever trust anyone attached to an American political project. Um, you know, like, what are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about advocating for ramping up and getting rid of NATO in the long run? Because we all know, that as long as NATO exists in the way it currently exists, it, it is a threat to world peace. But if there is no kind of a deal and brokerage for how to undo it, you're gearing up towards an eventual world war. And, like, what, and what I would add is if we get distracted in litigating who was right in the beginning of a war between two capitalist powers, we're ultimately fighting on the terrain of the liberal internationalists. Because, you know, if the argument is that, no, this war, you know, if, if, we're, if our argument is like who started the war, who's to blame for the war, then surely the, the outcome of that is that, well, whoever is to blame is in the wrong, right? And that is the grounds on which liberal interventionism is founded. We need to move past that kind of lit litigation uh, uh, like if Haiti invaded Florida, right? Would we then, you know, unprovoked invasion of Florida, would that then make, you know, would we support the United States crushing Haiti? You know, like, I don't know, I'm thinking of a silly example, but it just seems that the litigation of the Casas Valley for a particular conflict, all conflicts are multi-causal. They have long-term, short-term and medium-term uh, 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 goals. Uh, uh, causes. And I think we get too much distracted. It's like people want to litigate who did the poison gas attack in Syria. I mean, okay, let's litigate that. But does that change the fact that that country uh, is in a brutal civil war in which, you know, you have brutalities from both sides? You know, like, did, you know, what does that tell us? You know, what does it tell us in the end about like what this conflict means in a broader geopolitical sense? What are the causes of that conduct? People want a moral story where they can assign a good guy and a bad guy, an underdog and an overdog, when you end up just expressing solidarity with states and capitalist states. I mean, I have a lot more sympathy for people who are, you know, Vietnam or China or Cuba, you know, do or die people, because those are, you know, like uh, what they, they are. Not, they are. They are, uh, they are at least attempting to be so to, to transition to a socialist economy. Um, and, and even in cases where I think that they are ultimately operating in a capitalist mode, uh, I do think that those are sincere attempts and that we should take that seriously, even while also saying unequivocally when they aren't living up to their own mission. Um, however, you know, I, th there's a lot of this that I think has been irresponsible just on logistics grounds. 
are in two quoque. In fact, that's like the, the the number of responses we get that is like, well, you know, there's no demographic problem that China has that the West doesn't have. It's true. The West has immigration and it's had immigration for a long time. All the developed world has that problem. All the capitalist world has that problem. China is now integrated into it and is a middle income country, an aggregate. It's, it is the most productive country on the planet. There is going to be decoupling. We have no idea what that means. Um, and it seems to be happening far quicker than China's own policymakers want. Um, these things we need to be realistic about and not project upon them, particularly when your notion is a simpleton's idea of the Cold War. Like, there is an opera operational nostalgia from people who, frankly, often lecture me about countries that I've been in and they haven't. Um, and tell me about my social class when they come from three generations of, of professors and I don't. And so that's their natural response is to personalize things. And my response to that is normally to counter-personalize. Actually, my, my real response is to challenge you to a duel and tell you to man up and come find me. That's the Jason Miles approach. Um, the, the, the question that I have now is how do you break people from an addiction to only finding stuff that confirms their priorly existing worldview when also anytime that you try to do that, they're going to see it as an ideological imposition from their, for their enemy and they can project ideas upon you. One of the most fascinating things I've had, uh, I, I've noticed about the way people respond to uh, left media figures and particularly even myself is they impugn upon you all kinds of positions, positive and negative that you've never stated. And they do that for a variety of reasons. When often it's just like, I don't know the answer. And, and a lot of times I really have been like, I don't know the answer. There is not, I don't know that anyone knows the answer to this. Um, we don't know what these states and stuff are planning. We don't know a whole lot. What we can say, however, is we can rule out a whole lot of, of things negatively. Like, for example, I'm almost certain that Russia had very little to do with the North, with, with, you know, with Nord Stream. Um, I can't say that 100% and I wouldn't, but I could definitely say it's pretty close to. Um, however, um, we, we live in a fractured environment now where somehow leftists think they are exempt from the social imperatives that everyone that's fracturing everyone else. Like, I'm not exempt from it. I'm not. Like, um, I had hoped very early on in this war that Zelensky real, realized that there was no way that um, the U.S. was going to ever commit like direct troops on the ground like he was laughing to. He'd have a and he'd have a realization and and start and figure out a way to actually make concessions to end the war. That didn't happen. And that was me projecting because I didn't know. And there's a lot I didn't know. Um, fractured media environments mean that we have to project because we can because we have an incomplete picture, and that is even more true when we're dealing with countries we're not in. Um, 
I have a lot of conversations with Russians these days, uh, believe it or not, even though it's harder and harder to do. And um, it's been very illuminating to me what I missed out on and what I don't see and trying to keep that information in my head when I talk about this. Um, and increasingly, because of these patterns, a lot of people just don't want to deal with it anymore. You know, a lot of left media just doesn't, you know, there's just whole swaths of stuff on the left right now that even people who want to be responsible won't talk about because they don't want to get the pushback. They don't want the commentary. They don't want to deal with the people who are assured. But uh, none of this has brought any of them any closer to power. None of it. Not, not one bit. And they're further away. And they're more unpopular, too. Um, <coughs> socialism and, in America is declining in popularity from its uh, tip in 2018, and like people don't even talk about it. They always talk about the Overton window moving. And we're and we're living in a kind of degraded form of the sectarian strife of the 1970s. Right. It, it's a pathetic form, though, because it doesn't even have any real connection to those lived traditions. Like it is, it is all based on imagine. Like how many people who call themselves Marxist Leninists are in Marxist Leninist parties? Like, none of those parties are more than 5,000 people. I almost, in the United States, I almost assure you none of the people talking from them are in them. I almost never hear them mentioned anymore, partly because if they were, if they were subject to party discipline, they'd have to shut up. There's a whole lot of stuff you cannot talk about if you're in a democratic centralist party. The last thing you'll be doing is blabbering on Twitch and, and Twitter. Right. About... I mean... Well, some of those parties require you to turn over your, your internet handles and stuff, which, given the way a lot of people act, I don't necessarily encourage that, but I see why it would happen. So what is, what is this but projection? And I'm not interested in that anymore. Like, if if we are, you know, and when I come on and talk about that directly, it's when I'm most accused of being BSers. And I'm like, motherfuckers, I'm trying to be as honest with you as possible engaging what i'm saying in the in a limited way um i'm a, you know I, I i know my personal thoughts i am i tend to be feisty um i tend to throw a punch fast and those are faults those are not good things those are those are those are things that you should not encourage in people and including myself i should have more discipline but I am really after 10 years of hearing people, I've been on the left for 15 years. And I've heard bullshit that hasn't come true for 15 years. Ooh, we've got a super chat in Hong Kong dollars. How do we real, real an anti-war math movement in this hypersectarian? Oh, good point. That is a good point. Um, you know. It's like, what do we mean by anti-war, right? What is an anti-war position? Because is an anti-war position being against war full stop under any conditions? Or are we just picking the other side in the war? Well, I mean, if... I, I feel like that line is both fair, but also used by NATO apologists all the time. <laughs> It is. Um, it, it, like, it, I mean, that's that's the bind that we're in, 
You know, that's I think that's the bind. I think it's it's easier. I think it perhaps it's psychologically easier to construct a narrative uh, in which you exclude all the inconvenient facts and highlight all the very true things that reinforce your narrative. You know, and so that allows you to build like a solid na narrative that allows you to feel a kind of you've picked the right side in a particular uh, conflict. But I don't feel that, you know, I don't feel confident enough uh, to make a pronouncement on like what's going to be the, you know, six steps away outcome of any particular conflict between, you know, two capitalist powers. You know, here here's the the thing, and I, I want to be I want to be very clear on this. I think a left wing position that doesn't have to deal with the dismantling of NATO is irresponsible. Like I, I'm I'm going to say that. Mm -hmm. um, um, but I also realize that in a vacuum, all kinds of things can happen. So how do you ramp that down is of absolute crucial importance. If you think that any nation's gonna like. I don't know, um, you know, red dawn, the United States at this current moment. I don't really have a whole lot for you, nor do I think people who try to get out of this by invoking revolutionary defeatism. And by that, they mean uh, the specific context of like opposing the war and having both sides lose, uh, the, you know, and, and you're supporting your imperial, your side losing because it's imperial but you're also supporting the other side losing because it's also an empire. That was the classical Zimmerwald left position. That doesn't, I don't know how that applies here. Um, I don't know what it, like, I mean, if America, if America loses in Ukraine, right? Um, if we assume that NATO falters in Ukraine, does it actually affect the American military presence? I mean, it's, it's, it's egg on the face, but, They've suffered bigger egg on the face, my friends. Um, Got a super chat here. Uh, we are promoting the Rage Against the War rally at the end of the month in D.C., which is cross-political lines, and you guys poo-poo it. We haven't said anything about it. I was going to say, no one said anything about it one way or the other. Like, there's no way I could afford to get to D.C. to an anti-war protest. Um. I mean, good for you. I mean, like, good. Like, protest the war. You protest great. You know, like I, I was. You know, I was part of the Iraq War protest, and I think one of the one of the positions I have that gets people the most mad is that I I don't think protests matter very much. Um, I'm not saying they don't matter at all. They're good for internal uh, solidarity, but do people listen to them? No. The Viet Cong ended the war in Vietnam, not the anti-war movement. Exactly. Um, I think, I think uh, it's a little bit hubristic to believe that, you know, like you do you, you know, if you think it's a wise political action, sure. There's some yeah. people, there's some people uh, on that thing. I wouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, opposed on principle. I'm not opposed on principle to working with anti-war conservatives. I'm not. Yeah. I've had I've had Scott Horton on my show. Yeah. Like I mean um, but you know, just I mean, if I'm honest, it just seems like a podcast of jamboree to me. But prove me, you know, prove me wrong. There's no way I can get from Missouri to a DC protest. But you, you know what you're not gonna hear me do? You aren't gonna hear me shitting on it. 
All right. Yeah. Um, because because I don't know. Like I might I, I don't trust protests in general, but I've never gone after a specific protest unless it was like for the U.S. war effort or something. Um, because I, I, I participated in the anti-Iraq war, war protests, which were the biggest protests I ever seen. Right. You know, they said like, you know, they lied about the numbers. They definitely did the down. There was like people coming from my hometown state. And that was pretty hard for me personally speaking, I'll be honest, because, you know, at the time, a lot of the Kurdish community, the Iraqi Kurdish community, for very good reasons, were very pleased to uh, hear about the end of a, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein's re regime, right? Uh, because, you know, for the historical reasons that people would, who know anything about Iraqi and Kurdish history would know. But, you know, the point was to be against the war. There was this huge protest and it meant nothing. It meant absolutely fucking. There was no fallout. Labor didn't even lose the elections. Right. Well, uh, I mean, I like to talk about the history of protesting, actually, in the long term. Um, uh, admittedly, I'm pulling from E.P. Thompson and you guys can make your decision about what you think about that. But protesting in the 19th, 18th century was a way to show that you had force of arms if you needed to. You had the people to fight. But you weren't doing it. You were saying, we are going to come up. We can fight you if necessary. The problem is that after the Franco-Prussian War, fuck, even after the U.S. Civil War, that doesn't work. It's Warfare is not about just numbers of people anymore. So... I mean, in some ways, it also means that you can't buy a couple of peasants off, turn a mass group around, and then, like, hang them later, which is the traditional British way of handling that problem. And, and also, you know, it's like after 1848, the reactionary states of Europe learned the lesson that it's no accident that police forces are created precisely at the most uh, – at the points of most social turmoil in Europe. You know, yeah, they like, started in Ireland and spread throughout. Like, the, it's funny. The, the re the reason 1848 happened was in part because there was no security apparatus that could deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that was created post 1848. And, you know, the, the monumental power of uh, the state, the increasing capacity of the state has shifted the balance of power, uh, has shifted the balance of power away from those crowds that could now, the, the crowds can still cause revolutions in states with insufficient police powers. And, you know, not all states are equal in the modern world. But, you know, the, the terrifying thing about the state is not only its, you know, um, uh, gendarme capacity, but also the, you know, the, the various layers of ideological and uh, sort of political defenses that it has constructed around itself. A, a, a state that revort, uh, resorts to violence is a weak state. I mean, this is an interesting thing. I've been thinking about the whole democratization of the American uh, labor process. And I think um, you can read the super chat while I... Well, well just uh, thanks, JB, for the super chat. Um, uh, we enjoy having people here. Um, one thing I will say uh, about, about this is I have been surprised when I look, study a, 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 the history of democratization, how quickly the oligarchy adjusts to it. 
one of the things we have to remember is the primary system as we have it now came out of specifically the Democratic Party having to deal with anti-war protests in 1968, which caused chaos at its national convention and broke up the caucuses. Um, down to like there being anti-war candidates no one see, Robert Kennedy gets killed, all kinds of things happen. The political system in general is totally destabilized in the 70s. And also in concurrent to that, you have a you have an economic crisis and an oil shock. But by the 1980s, it seems like the oligarchies have reestablished themselves. And I say oligarchies here specifically because I can't actually blame it on just the bourgeoisie. It is the servants of the bourgeoisie, honestly, because the bourgeoisie has been out to lunch since the 1960s when it realizes that if it structuralizes everything, they don't have to run the businesses anymore. They can amass massive family wealth. And it's not even going to show up on the on the Forbes 500 because it's broken up between so many individuals and you don't even know who they are. Most and of the rich and bourgeois politics, I think this is perhaps, and maybe I'm maybe maybe you disagree with me on this. Bourgeois politics is not one for one the politics of the literal bourgeoisie. No, it's not. I, I mean no, I agree with you on that. If you look at bourgeois democratic revolutions across the developing world, they were often enacted in spite of bourgeois like uh bourgeois the literal bourgeoisie they were often enacted by military officers professionals who wanted bourgeois politics right, right? so you know we yeah we have this uh, uh, we have this like if you look at the revolutions in iran in china in uh, in the ottoman empire in the early 20th centuries those were not spearheaded uh well to elect that at the vanguard of those revolutions was not necessarily the bourgeoisie, but rather a modern, quote-unquote, progressive class of officers and those familiar with bourgeois politics who, sought to, who, who saw that as being modernity, that bourgeois politics was modernity. Yeah, I think, um, well, this is an interesting question. Like when everyone talks about, you know, when the anarchists throws at you, well, all the Marxist leaders were not, uh, were not, um, workers and i'm always like yeah but the capitalist leaders weren't capitalists they weren't merchants um it, it's actually quite interesting that, that that there's that separation and i think uh when people you know people are known for me critiquing the pmc thesis because i think it's too broad but one thing i will say is there is a rational core to it and that the structuralization of capital has meant that the managers of the capitalist state no longer really come from the capitalist class themselves, because the capitalist class is just like pulling dividends out on the leveraging between, you know, debt and currency elsewhere, and they no longer need to do shit. They don't even have to reinvest. And in some ways, that's not something that I thought that I think uh, Marxists historically in the 19th century predicted that you could structuralize to that extent. Um. And, and and in that sense, there is a real sense that, like, when Mao talks about capitalist rollers, um, uh, that there is a there is a strata of professionals that we have to deal with. My critique of the PMC class is, is it tends to lump in 40% of the population uh, at one moment and talk about 1% the next, um, because the elite managers of, uh, of capital are not anyone with a fucking college degree or even a master's degree. They are a very specific class of people. Um, and they are small. Um, and furthermore, 
managers and professionals actually are are often fighting each other in American politics. Um, but none of them have the working class interest at hand. But the working class is weirdly it's it, you know there are two things in American life that I think is that I think are not noticed. One that the managerial elite in the United States is incompetent, but you know where you know where the most competent of its incompetence are? It's not in academia, it's not in finance, it's not in tech, it's in the fucking military. Mm-hmm. Most innovation comes out of DARPA. Um and and the other and so like when people were talking about a civil war between like Trumpites and liberals, I'm like, there's no way the military is going to allow that to happen, you fucking morons. Why are you acting like like the US military is clearly on one side or the other when it's deliberately and actively in the Floyd uh, uprisings told the federal government no like they out and out told trump no we will not let you use us uh invoking the insurrections act they told him no like and i don't think people really thought about the implications of that for american you know executive sovereignty because that's not technically supposed to happen um but very clearly, they made sure that everyone who mattered knew we are still in charge. All right. Um, and that's not conspiracy thinking either. And I think this this is something that the anti-imperialists are right about. You know, that might be wrong that they, these people are particularly competent, but they are really the managerial core of our society. Like they're the only generalist left. Everybody else is so specialized they can't they can only do certain things. That's a, that was another thing that we were. And the question, about. just to just jump in, the question about competence is about on what level are we talking about comp- competence? Cooper raised the point. There's a difference between strategic and operational competence, right? And so the U.S. military does have operational competence, right? Uh, the, the 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 strategic question is you know a different question. And ultimately, you know, they are subject to the same factional fights. I mean, there was a huge factional fight between various departments during the literal Iraq invasion. They were stepping on each other's toes all the time uh, as that, you know, I've read several of the memoirs and they're all just bitching about it's less about the enemy and more about like the bureaucratic struggles that they had to fight with various incompetent officials from State Department to uh, uh, CIA to Department of Defense and things like that. So, you know, when you look at, when we talk about, you know, you give a s- specific limited program for an American military office to execute, they will execute it very well because they're trained yeah. to do that. And there are costs for failure, right? Uh, there's no cost for failure if you're an elite finance person, you're in the right social networks and you'll get your ass, no, you're not going to be poor, right? But, you know, if you fuck up a military operation, you could be dead. Or you could be dead at the hands of your own people by some kind of ridiculous. This it's a real uh, cost to that. So, so but, it's interesting to me. For example, David Graeber's book "Bullshit Jobs" was super popular, and it's probably not popular in this crowd, but I bring it up for reason because a lot of people thought that the mid-tier administrative jobs were bullshit. Well, as the tech comp- corporations are are cutting those people merely to spike stocks, and by the way, leftists who tell you it's just social contagion aren't looking at stock prices. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I actually agree with uh Chris Miller. They don't give a shit about street politics. That was not about like they don't care 
uh, I wasn't implying that they cared about George Floyd. <laughs> like, yeah, they, um, they, they they were like, like, don't get us into your bullshit. Trump. Yeah, exactly. Um, we got we got bigger bigger things to do. Um, one thing I think that certain members of the military elite have realized, and I think like Peter Zion's become their voice popularly, um, which is why we should be careful with him. But you know, we should listen to him, but with a skeptical ear, right? Like because I think he vastly overstates the problems China has, etc. But I think he's right that our military elites do realize that the current empire is unsustainable and that, well, it's just not worth it to maintain blue water trade for globalization anymore. And that's what also why that those policies that were associated with Trump and really kind of began under Obama have been maintained by by Biden. Um, the the Ukraine situation is and gearing up for a war with with uh china which interestingly i'm not sure they actually want but i know they want us to believe they want because as long as that's a real possibility um we'll continue funding them yeah, um I mean, I mean that's the that's the thing that I, I i often think to myself is like you know you whether they believe it or not is irrelevant because i think the primary motive is to maintain their institutional viability correct and you can't you can't maintain your institutional viability without some kind of war threat whether i mean i'm sure there's people who believe that there's a war is inevitable and there's people who don't believe that there's a war is inevitable but their primary concern is the extraction of resources from the u.s government because look nobody fucking votes against war budgets nobody not nobody if you want to if you want to ask me what my biggest criticism of aoc and the squad is it's not bloody forced to vote. That's for sure. It's, it's that they won't vote against war budgets. But I also think we... Look, I'm going to say something that I don't know how the audience is going to respond. I know there's been a lot of hope around MMT and these monetary theories to, to help us. One of the things that I point out is the reason why big states can do sovereign monetary policy like that is because they can they can either compel through producing enough or they can force through guns people trading with them. Whereas small states can't. And that's the reason why small states peg their currency to other currencies, because they have to buy things from the states that use those currencies. They can't, they're not internal autarkies. And they M- can't. MMT is a rich man's game. Right. It's a rich man's game. And and some level, I think a lot of people in the progressive wing of the US government, I think, and I don't, I'm not imputing this as like an active thought they have in their head, but I think most of them kind of think that that like if we end globalized trade regime we can't afford to print our way to do the social policies we want to do um i don't think that they've thought it through i don't think that it's coherent like that like i said i tend to have cuba's view that these people are are operating on operational constants and instinct but that does seem to be a lot of people's instinct um i I tend to think that that is because a lot of people have given up on any like non-reformist politics um, at all, you know, Um, and and this is manifested in a lot of different ways and projections on other states and projections on 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 on, uh, characters within our state. Um, and we have to deal with the changes of, of American political economy for these justifications. So, like, for example, 
my point earlier about civic republicanism fading away to administrative to the neutral administrative state and liberal rights theory um, has to do with also the different stages of capital and what people you have to incorporate into your polity. So if you are trying to do either a Fordist or a neoliberal move, you have to incorporate all kinds of people to stabilize your workforce. And so civic republicanism is not a viable option. Um, but it also was the justification and internal ideology of the U.S. settler colonial state. Right. And, and, and it had a moral and political valence. It just was highly exclusive. The neutrality of the state is very much an ideology of state and public partnership periods, which both Fordism and neoliberalism both are. And um, let's not let's not forget the peculiarities of uh, the developments of quote unquote social democracy in the United States, which has always been in, uh, has always been privatized. Right? Cuba makes this point, you know, over and over again, that whereas in Europe and Asia, you had some kind of state elite in the United States, like the the interpenetration of private capital and state ca capital is greater, it's probably at its greatest extent. Uh, yeah, people, uh, th there's a lot of people talking about US is not the primary reserve currency. The largest shift of reserve currency is actually the euro and the pound. And that actually makes sense if you look at what happened to Liz Trust government. Liz Trust government tried to do the kind of neoliberal like austerity without austerity politics, i.e. you don't actually cut the rate. She was, she was scuppered by all those left-wing economists. In right, who, who basically reminded Britain that you're not the imperial hegemon anymore, you can't just print money, right? Unless the U.S. says you can and they don't, um, or the EU. And the EU is similarly having problems because the EU is in a desperate resource situation, and it doesn't seem desperate unless you start looking at all kinds of other problems that it and the, va the, the value of the U.S. Uh, uh, money is not simply the U.S. economy or the U.S. taxpayer even, but it's the military power that the United States has, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a, ultimately, its value is a political question. Uh, and, you, the, you know, people can go into Euros, but Europe, Europe does, not have a, does not have the global clout as a unified entity that the United States has. It, the value of money is a political question. There's a reason. There's a reason why countries in debt in in the 19th century, some of them got gun poked di diplomacies, whereas the Kaiserreich didn't. Well, right. I wonder why they didn't get gun poked diplomacy because it's a political power question. If you don't have political power in the global economic system, you can fucking print money till the cows come home, but it's going to mean jack shit. You're going to go Zimbabwe. Like, I mean, right. isn't that what they did in Zimbabwe? Unless you have military and economic power combined together, your currency is kind of screwed. There's the a reason why by guns. Yes, it's the, there's a reason guns. why uh, why it took uh, the breakup of the Kaiserreich for the, for for inflation to really hit Germany, right? Like, like let's think about it for a second. Um, the the uh, there's points being made. Uh, I wanted to say I do believe last time I checked. Um, the euro plus the dollar make up about 75% of reserve currencies. It is the U.S. is being uh, hoisted as a reserve currency because it's expensive right now. 
but it's expensive because private actors are hoarding uh, bonds because they think maybe debt interest will go, you know, um, the interest on bonds will go up. Um, another thing that I would tell people to look at with this, it's really important is uh, the yuan is becoming part of the reserve currency in a real way, in a way that it wasn't before. The ruble is not um, what, what Putin's uh, ruble action really did was stabilize its currency by getting a lot of foreign currency in so it could stop its devaluation, which, which was a great, it's actually, that's a brilliant move to undermine sanctions. I mean, like that's, that's really smart. Um, but it ironically did help stabilize the price of the dollar and even push it up. Um, so, and, it's no, and it's no accident that people are moving money into yuan because the China is not only an economic power, but it's increasingly seen as a viable military power, at least in its regional capacity. You know, right. so, you know, it's a it's a it's a serious cut. The, the problem that people have when people propose I want to push back a little bit when people propose like this ruble renminbi system is that Russia at the moment cannot be a consumer of last resort for China's production. The way the West can it, 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 if it had made different choices at the end of the Soviet Union, it could be. This is not because Russia is inherently weak, or it's, that's not my argument. It's just they made, they did not invest in in consumer goods, and for some reasons that were logical, actually. And then they, uh, in the seventies and eighties, and then in the collapse, those industries were largely maintained as they were. Um, so. You know, think about that what you will. It does mean that like decoupling is not can't be automatic. Now, over the long run, I have no fucking idea. Like whole many things can change. One of the ironies of sanctions is that they probably will sure up parts of the political apparatus in in Russia and thus make slightly more cohesive uh uh and, and um, domestic consumer goods economy. I mean, it, it leads to the creation of what they call the a resistance economy. Right, right. right. Which yeah. which might actually eventually fill that in. I mean, like one of the one of the things is I, I I don't support sanctions for humanitarian reasons. But even if I was a NATO shill, I would think these sanctions magics was just bullshit. Like it's not going to do what you want it to do. Well, it depends um, what you want it to do. Like sanctions worked very well on Iraq in the 1990s because the objective was to, to it was not to change the regime throughout the 90s, but rather the primary objective was to limit Iraq's ability to to uh, menace American allies in 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 the region, which they did. They uh, they they destroyed Saddam Hussein's offensive capacities. At home, the regime was strengthened by you know, to an extremely uh, high degree. All independent centers of economic power were coalesced into the state. That's what you see with, uh, that's what you see with sanctions. I mean, so it depends what your objective is. If your objective, for example, is regime change, quote unquote, sanctions are a bad policy. If your objective is to cripple a country's capacity, uh, you know, to be a major foreign policy player, which I think that was primarily the American objective after 1991 until, you know, the the, the freaking new American century guys got in. Um, you know, it, it is effective, right? Like to hell with the people, right? You know, it doesn't, you know, they get, they get their sacks of rice from the UN and it's not our business who Saddam Hussein distributes to them. It's not our business what Saddam Hussein spends his fucking palace money on. We don't give a shit because our only concern is that Saddam Hussein can't, 
cause a kerfuffle in the fucking Gulf and raise the global oil price. Right. Right. One thing I, I will, I will, I want to back someone up who I was arguing with earlier, but uh, the thing that the U S can't do uh, Chinese military containment, I largely agree. I'm not sure this is, I have no idea. Let me rephrase this. I have no idea from reading the tea leaves we get out of the Pentagon. If they actually mean what they say about, about denormalizing Taiwan and potentially starting hostilities there or not. We have to admit, however, this is a this has been a relatively long durée pattern, which liberals somehow think just emerged with Trump. But I saw starting starting to happen in 2010, 2011, when I was living in the Republic of Korea. I mean, this this was before then. Uh, like there were people at the time of the uh, war on terrorism, including people like Liz Cheney, the yeah Lord, yeah who were who were who were, who were, who were saying this is I mean this uh, this is a wrong deployment of imperial strategy that our strategy should be directed towards china and we i mean this is was this was the sleight of hand obama played right obama was able to challenge all the discontent at the iraq war and the war on terrorism into a political campaign which functionally sought to reorientate uh american foreign policy towards in, uh, towards the pivot to asia right this is why I just think the conspiracy theories about America orchestrating the war, the Syrian civil war, uh, according to a predetermined plan, are nonsense because that was a distraction from what the uh, Obama administration's main foreign policy objective was, which was to adopt a more uh, conf uh, conflictual and competitive posture towards China. We saw this with TP what was it, TPP, TPP, the yeah. Trans-Pacific Partnership, was a precisely a policy designed to lock at China out of particular markets in in, in uh, Southeast Asia. So, you know, like the, the, the you know, a lot of people in the Middle East are like, ah, like the Syrian civil war was a conspiracy by the, it's like the Syrian civil war is what would have happened if America had not gone into Iraq. That's what would have happened to Iraq, Right. The regime was brittle, and at some point there would be some fucking crisis. And in Syria, it was a famine, right? It was basically a huge drought, and fucking all hell broke loose. And then everybody gets sucked in because right, I was all... say the intelligence apparatus operate on that kind of stuff like fries on shit. It, it, I think yeah. most people are right when they think that the like the, that uh, states are using this for proxy wars. Of course they are. The 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 issue is that it's, it's more causality. opportunistic, it's right? Causality. It's more opportunistic than what most people think. And not to forget, uh, there's a whole load of regional powers that manipulate the imperial apparatus to towards their own uh, specific ends for their own regional uh, interests, and they are able to use their superior knowledge uh, on the ground to do so. That's what happened. You know, who do you think was giving the CIA names of people to arm in uh, in Syria, Turkey, Turkish? Right, I was about to say like. Prime example of this is Turkey under Erdogan. Yeah, uh, our, I mean, our, our Egypt under Nasser, or you know, like um, these these local powers have agency too. And um, I mean, I've actually pointed that out in the way, like a lot of the the Baltic states, play, you know, are really play nice with the United States. Well, if your hegemon is across the ocean, is it really your hegemon? Like that's the logic there, right? I mean, of course, yes, well, like it people, is really your Hajiman, but people were talking about ah, all these revolts in Kazakhstan was somehow a CIA 
operation. It was a factional fight within the Kazakh elite. Like freaking Tony Blair was going to Kazakhstan. I mean, he did used to go to, or people building up Gaddafi as like this. It's like Gaddafi was on the rendition programs. They were renditioning people to torture him in in like bank like Libya is a country that has been profoundly impacted by particular policies pursued by the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century and then by Italian colonialism and is rent with regionalisms and regional rivalries, right? Benghazi and uh, Tripolitania were historically not the same province. And, you know, there was an explosion after years of Gaddafi's rule. Certain groups benefited, certain groups uh, got pissed off under that regime. Then uh, the Western powers got sucked in for a variety of reasons, not just because of the will of the United States, but because various Arab powers were seeking to settle scores within Syria as well and played their you know, imperial patrons uh, and dragged them into the ga game. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a whole lot that, that, I, that I think people just need to... to like... Kazakhstan revolted partly because the freaking oil price and gas prices were hiked up, by the way. Someone in the chat saying it's about vax... Uh, Vax passport. The underlying problem was that in a country swimming in natural gas and oil, they hiked up the freaking price while while the post-Nazabayev government was living fucking large on the hog. And I've seen those motherfuckers and what they get up to in uh uh you know in Kazakhstan. Fucking living the dream, coming to Istanbul, like spending their money, having a great time. Although Vax passports didn't probably help. Probably didn't help, right? You know, people can, <laughs> like I don't want to say they didn't play any role at all. Um, I mean it's one of the things about the nature of popular revolts right now, actually, is they're very hard for like the American political left to, to deal with because for example, I used to get so frustrated with progressives when they were like, well, we want all this stuff uh, in, um, in uh, build back better for climate change. But if you're going to get rid of that, we'll accept that what we won't get rid of is the tax hike on energy prices. And I'm like, so you're going to make energy more costly to the poor and then wonder why the poor fucking hate you when you're also not providing any offsets and you're letting them take out all the, and, and we saw that with the yellow vest in France. Um, and the crisis, I, 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 this is where I'm going to sound pretty politically dire. Almost all the Western governments know right now, the only legitimacy they can have and the only civic effort they can have. And I don't think this is conspiracy. I don't think this is planned. That's I, th I think Cuba may have been pushing back on me. But I think what they have seen just in, since, since frankly, 9 of fucking 11 is that in the absence of the Cold War, the only way to maintain the, the seeming legitimacy of political rule is crisis. And there's no incentive if, you're, if, if your legitimacy is based on continuing to avert crisis to actually fix the problems of internal crisis. Which well, is why I, would, I would say this to defend Cuba. I think it's perfectly possible for the U.S. elites to want to survive on crisis without having a well-thought-out oh. idea of a fourth-generational conflict in Ukraine being that vehicle. They'll oh, no, take no, I think he was right about They'll I take think he was whatever right about vehicle that. they want, uh, uh, whatever vehicle they want, uh, to the freaking crisis party. Well, well, I think that was me. Like me, uh, I will say, of if I've said anything that was bullshit tonight, it's it's what I said that I felt really unsure about, which was, is it their plan? Uh, does it seem like it's their plan to turn, uh, um, 
Ukraine into white Afghanistan, when I also see when when the U.S. amps up and pulls back. Um, but the thing is, I am perfectly willing to believe that there's no plan at all, because my experience with these people is similar to Cuba's that they don't that they have specialized knowledge in such a way. Bro, if you've ever met people from the State them. Department, you've never met such a, a, a crop of highly credentialed mediocrities. Well, I have met people from the State Department, so like, um, it's, it, it, is, it is something else, actually. Although they're better at doing imperialism in some parts of the world than they are in other parts of the world. Like, they're not very good at, like, they're quite good at doing it in the Caribbean because they've got a lot of institutional memory, as they say. Whereas when it comes to the Middle East, they're fucking... Not sending the sending like CIA assets who spent all their time in the Bolivian jungle and expecting them to work their magic in Samara. Yeah, I mean this is uh, this, but but nonetheless, I don't believe I I just don't believe that quote deep state is that competent, frankly. Um, But I do think there's a way in which there's a lizard brain response where everyone knows that crisis benefits political rule. That's why that's why we see. I mean, like could. I did not think if you'd have told me in 2007 that I'd have seen liberal conspiracy theories about Russia get mainstream news press, you know, off of a few things that are true, but most of which is conjecture. And then when it's shown to be largely false or at least unsupportable, that there's no backlash to it whatsoever. I don't know that even I would have believed you. And I didn't trust those motherfuckers back then. Like th- that that sense of crisis management, it's like what what a lot of the liberal a lot of the liberal center and liberal left learned from the Bush administration is if you throw terrorism out enough as a word, people really will just let you do whatever. Yeah, they'll freaking like they'll you'll fi- sign away your constitutional protections, but. With the liberals, it will be to stop white supremacy. Yeah, or, then, or Russia, or, or Russia, or what have you, and then uh, maybe what, China because it's going to be hard to spin the white supremacy narrative about China. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, may, although I think I've seen someone try it. Internalized white supremacy. Internalized white. Supremacy. Oh, internalized white supremacy. Ooh, that's that's a that. That's why. Know, uh, that's why Pascal and Jason always hate on that Afro-pessimism stuff, because it is literally a ready-made narrative to promote intersectional imperialism. Mm. You know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a ready, you know, like, look, look who, look who these people are, you know, like you, you have this, like this advert that was a few, uh, a few months ago, uh, well, maybe a few years ago now with the, like, I'm a Latino, uh, uh, anxiety disorder, um, you know, CIA operative. And I'm just imagining the scene in Jack Ryan where Jack Ryan's like, I need an extraction now. She's like, I'm having a panic attack. And then Jack Ryan just gets his like head cut off. So, you know, like we have this, we have this, um, you know, you have this, uh, this, uh, this like a- endless, like freaking reincorporation of themes of social justice to serve the most barbarous uh, political ends. And the issue is not that social justice is bad, right? 
The issue is not that like I don't oh, know well, what social justice is, my friend. Well, all right. The issue is not that the emancipation of various, uh, uh, the emancipation and acceptance of various, you know, historically discriminated religious, uh, uh, you know, ethnic, racial, sexual categories is a bad thing, right? It's the the problem is the way that it's being abused, right? In the same way as you know, talk of like democracy and emancipation is used and abused to justify imperial barbarism. Well, yeah, I mean, there's almost nothing that you can't invert, right? Like, uh, um, um, and imperial politics have always. Uh, uh, I'm gonna. Say and the, and the bloody problem is, is that the left, insofar as it exists, or at least insofar as it engages in the discourse invariably is just an echo of the same culturally framed conflicts that rack bourgeois politics it's so, woke uh, versus anti-woke right so this is this is this is actually something that i i've talked to you about um a good deal when it comes to the way this is used to like throw people off on geopolitical complicatedness right like this is what i meant by the I don't trust the moralisms because they're usually a lie. Um, and but it's also because I, I it's so hard to stay out of it. Do you know how disciplined you have to be? Like I don't say the W word on my own podcast because it will immediately degenerate into a into a into a pro anti discussion where a lot of times the terms aren't even relevant to what I'm talking about. Like, um, and it seems like those those words are like Pavlovian dog whistles that that. Um, but they, they the 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 their use is not that they uh like have some metaphysical meaning to them, but that they that this woke versus anti woke has become the binary around which debates take place. Well, then why do we use it? Like, why do we engage in a debate which the enemy sets up? Well, my, my point is not to engage in the debate with it, but to highlight the existence of how this debate is being reproduced within the quote unquote left, right? The, the point is not like, this is how people are defining themselves, right? This is not how you need to be defining yourself, right? This is, this is, this is the terms of the debate, right? You got to see the problem. And we're reproducing this kind of ridiculous woke versus anti-woke manosphere versus like trad what like total nonsense right we have to see that first in order to like understand like okay the, so it's like what's the what's the actual stakes of this what is it being used to obfuscate well i mean it's just like pascal once said about critical race theory that that uh um once the right figured out how to use it they got way more political baggage out of it than yeah, like 40 years of both the left and black people being able to kick it well, around. You know what? You know my joke about it is I'm a conscientious objector in the culture war. But, it's but not the thing is, fight. right. But the thing is, the moment you even mention the fight, Gene, you are now in the fight. Yeah, but like, like, you can't ignore it. You can't, you can't. If this I don't know, I do a pretty goddamn good job. If this is the terms of the debate, right? If this is the terms of the debate, it's a wrong terms of debate. We shouldn't be debating on this, this uh, 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 woke versus anti-woke thing. We should be exposing what both sides are doing, which is 
alternative forms of bourgeois moralism, whether it's your religious reactionary bourgeois moralism or some kind of progressive liberal bourgeois moralism. It's two sides of the same bloody coin. Right. The, so the, the game is to say like, hey, you know, you don't defeat this debate by picking a side. You defeat it by going beyond it. Right. So, but all this is about co-option co until those words don't mean anything. I mean, one of the things that is being brought up is like the history of the word work. And I, I for, for those of you who don't know, I did a whole, a liberal friend of mine asked me to come on his podcast to explain what the term meant. And I went through this whole history of its use in, in black culture, how it shifted, when it changed to mean what we used to mean as JW when it was co-opted by the right. Here's the thing. A lot of people who told me they were standing for the culture war don't shut the fuck up about it. Like, they don't. Like, that's the only thing they fight. They tell me they're abstaining for the culture war, and then they're just blathering on are about you, what arbitrary... Are, are you coming for me, Vaughn? Are you coming for me? <laughs> Not I'm yet. Coming. I'll tell you. You'll know, I, I announced my target. Okay. Um, I'm going to get a drone strike. I don't use drones. That's cowardly. Um... Barbarian horde methods only. Someone's got to grab someone still beating heart from their chest. Like, that's how, like, let's be real here. That's true. Um, so, no, but actually, what, what I am coming for is, like, I was part of a show that had a, we're not going to talk about woke or anti-woke stuff. And you know what the end of the show was? What? Nothing but woke or anti-woke stuff. Like, literally somebody, who I won't name, was listening to like blocked and reported and having me give a Marxist spin on that, which is the least useful fucking thing I can think of. Talking about Doug Lane because he's the only person I know who listens to blocked and reported. <laughs> um, well, he's also the only person you know who I did a show with for many years. That's true. Um, that easy guess, but like you know, this isn't the freaking cultural revolution. You know, this no. is this is just this is just the freaking. Uh, uh, this is just an echo of the like mainstream politics in this country. And people who try to like, you watch people who try to deal with it or critique it or critique, like whatever the social codes coming out of academia go, you watch them go weirder and weirder. The more they try to counter. It's like, it. it's like we were talking about the other day. Uh, I think it was off air, actually. It wasn't on air. We were talking about like how if you listen to Compact Magazine's podcast, Sora Bamari is better than the freaking Marxist at being a Marxist. Yeah, weirdly. Weirdly like, enough. The, 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 the Catholic who is telling the Marxist that uh, Ron DeSantis' march through the in institution is pointless because material conditions mean that these institutions won't matter in 10 years. Um, you know, and and... You know, I, I was like, that's a damn good Marxist point that the Marxists aren't talking about on this, you know, but because well, they're too busy being transgressive, you know, right? Well, it, and that's when you get into these terms, right? If you get sucked into this game, but my point has been, I guess, Gene is, is look, we've talked now, we were talking about what the left should do in response to the war and how, how many cul-de-sacs of thinking that it's in, and now we're talking about woke versus anti-woke, but because we know in some way this will be utilized to justify policies. That's why, I mean, like, you know, that's why we always have to throw the F word around all the time. Like, things can be bad and not fascist. Like, I and, and frankly, 
fascism is an increasingly useless term term unless used in a unless it uh, unless it refers to the specific region of fascism in Germany. Um, no, I mean like fascism is increasingly useless uh, in the modern age of politics. You know, like it just seems. I mean, what does fascism re represent? Fascism represents an attempt to solve the contradictions within capitalism and liberal democracy. I mean, you know, my thing is fascism is Bonapartism on crack rock. But yeah. like, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like... It's, it's a form of Bonapartism. And there are many varieties of Bonapartism. Uh, like there can be, you know, there can be a useful analytical, uh, it can be a useful analytical subcategory, but it shouldn't be seen as a category in and of itself. Yeah, it, it's uh, one of the things I think we're going to have to deal with in in Amer and it's an irony of America of, of American life, particularly hegemony makes you weak. I know that sounds weird, but the, and I, this is actually something that I think, you know, we talk about being historically specific, but I think this is true. Like in other epochs than capitalism um, and the reason why. Like, why don't Americans learn other languages? Is it because they're stupid or because they're hegemons and they don't need to? It's almost always the latter, right? It, instead of, you know, the explication is people are dumb, um, you should ask, but why are people incentivized to be dumb? What about being a hegemonic power does that, all right? Um, and it's kind of obvious. When you have a lot of power, people kiss your ass. Sure. And, you know, why do I bring this up? Because we have to think about what that means in the context of the U.S. Uh, and North America. North America, theoretically, could be energy and food secure for a long time, even with climate change conditions. Now, not forever on the climate, because no one can be, for a long time. And yet it seems to completely let the internal infrastructure of the core of the empire fall apart. Can't even so keep so, the train on the tracks. Right. It's so much so that it seems like it's more concerned about the periphery of the empire than the core. Like, and yet, and that there's no way you can like under purely rational calculus make that make sense because like we should be able to be relatively independent given the resources that North America has and the integration that North American states have with each other. And yet that's that seems impossible right now. Right. There is a real sense that despite these these real material benefits and advantages that are, are from geography, even right, um, that the United States should be much more internally coherent than it is. And it's not. Why is it not? It's just riding the fucking wave. Right. And the bourgeoisie seemed absent. Like I, that's that was my point earlier about the bourgeoisie. They're nowhere to be found. The richest families in the country are all families, if I name to you, you recognize them because they got rich under, like, in the 1960s and maintained it, but they're not doing shit. That's why you don't hear about them. They're just sort of, like, living off dividends. Um, living the dream, baby. So, you know, like, and so, like, we have a, we have a working class that, that seemingly we can't figure out how to politicize it. We have, um, uh, a managerial and professional class that seems to be the most credentialed that any and and really specialistly educated that any of the world has known, yet doesn't have basic skills to maintain itself. Uh, can't 
uh, almost every institution has a paper tiger. Um, uh, I was talking to, I, I remember watching Carl Ja compare U.S. military ads to Chinese military ads. And I remember Carl Ja was making these points about American culture, which I actually agreed with. But Ja was like, well, this tells you something that seems fundamental about America. And then I like flashed up a, a, an ad from the 1950s, which looked a lot like a 1950s version of the Chinese military ad. And my mm. point was like, that wasn't always true, even in this capitalist imperialist shithole. <laughs> like, like. Well, like, you know, like ba Daniel Besson often talks about some of the technological changes in military power and how, you know, you don't need a freaking conscript army anymore. In fact, you definitely don't want a conscript army because then Rando improves social solidarity and 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 desegregates the classes from one another and skills them in how to fight. Yeah. Yeah, like, you don't want any of that. <laughs> and I have a drone with some people who played a lot of Xbox rather than, you know, like, you know, this technological revolution, we're just seeing it, you know, like with all this talk of AI and stuff like that. And I know AI isn't really AI. It's like just a spreadsheet, but you know what it is? And a lot of fucking jobs are getting taken. A lot of the mental jobs that were taken, that were previously secure from automization, they're going to be freaking automized, right? Uh, so yeah, it's all pretty freaking depressing. Well, we've been going for nearly three hours. Yeah, we've been, we've been Vaughn, you have to go to bed because you have work in the morning. Uh, people in the chat, uh, do you like White Guy Wednesdays? Because maybe if Cooper and Vaughn agree, we can do this a little bit more often where we will, we will, uh, we will, um, come on and yell into the darkness and uh, be very depressed uh, about the state of affairs of the world and and be in awe of all the true believers of whatever political tendency you have like because mate that must be quite secure having a belief uh, uh, in the inevitable victory of Xi Jinping. What are we people are asking us about when uh when um Gaming materialist will be back soon. I think we have to we have to hit up. A, it's it's on us to get our dear friend, um, our dear dear friend, discourse minis, uh, and get her back. And perhaps we can uh, we can do another nailing it down where we will talk about Galna, and maybe we'll get Cooper in on that. Actually, that might be fun. He's read Galna, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd be happy to have Cooper, and we could talk about Galna and then uh, Hob Swamp. Um, but let's do go. I think we said Hobson, but we did Galna first. No, we said Galna first. We did. I note these things down on a piece of paper, Vaughn. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> people are like, I'm glad that, but do you know one of the most funny things about, about teaching? You'd think it'd be a job that's hard to alienate, but it is not anymore. Um, uh, we are content deliverers, my friend. Uh, delivering you know, content to customers. Yeah, um, uh, I, I actually heard my boss refer to my 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 parent my my students' parents as customers, and I was like, "What? Oh my Jeez. god, we're at a public school, motherfucker!" <laughs> like, and does like... anything does anything <laughs> does anyone in the chat have any suggestions for things you would like Kuba, myself, and Vaughn to talk about in the future? We will take suggestions in the chat right now. Uh, uh, you know, whatever's going on. Um, any suggestions? Swarthy Thursday. Well, you've got Adolf Reed tomorrow. Adolf Reed will be yeah. in the house. The, the big man is in town. Uh, so, you know, uh, Jason and Pascal and MT will be ready to take the fortress. And 
talk about MAGA communism. Oh boy. Oh boy. Vaughn, do you want to talk about MAGA communism? (laughs) 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 Sri Lanka. We actually did something. We did something on Sri Lanka uh, a while back with Kuba and Spencer, I remember. Uh, Have a struggle session with Chris (laughs) Morlock. A struggle session. What? what? Uh, I I don't have my red guards and dunce caps, right? Like one of us has got to end up in a dunce cap and then like throw themselves into the river and that how that's supposed to work? Like... Um, well, you know, Chris Chris Morlock's favorite, uh, one of his. I will not. I will not be so bold as to say his favorite, but one of his, his uh, his things he likes to do is come for me. Uh, oh well, I, I'm glad he's actually been... and call me a professor. Get very get get very angry. At Aren't me. you? But you are a professor, Gene. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm literally a professor. It's like, well done. I am a professor, and also, I did go to uh, an imperialist institution. But what isn't an imperialist institution in the West? What can I say? What can I say? So, you know, maybe a struggle session with Comrade Chris down the line, but we have to have the dunce caps. Zambia, we, we do need to get some good, good, uh, better. I, I, I do feel like we need African specialists instead of two pale ass guys who. Yeah, like, we I do only know to, North Africa. I don't know. Some, I don't know the rest some, of the continent. We need, sadly. Some, we need some good bourgeois historians, right? Like uh, someone's asking for Korea, China, Japan, U.S. relations. I feel a little bit more comfortable with that slightly. That's, that's uh, Kuba's thesis was on that as well. He works on uh, the Asian developmentalist state, uh, and um, yeah, I think that would be an interesting topic. I definitely want to do some more world stuff. Uh, you know, get so get so maybe do some more historical stuff. I have some interesting authors I want to talk to about imperialism in the Middle East during the 19th century. I know it's a little bit self-indulgent, but it's kind of uh, an interesting topic. There's been some really excellent books coming out lately. Uh, There's a guy I want to get back on who talks about authoritarian neoliberalism in Turkey, but he's spreading out his work a little bit more, which is super exciting. And uh, nope, we blame Sri Lanka on, you know, like the biggest problem the Chinese have with their debt stuff is like, their deals are pretty freaking good. It's just they like to keep them secret. So. Yeah, this is, that's the only thing. I, everything I've studied is like they make good deals, but don't want anyone to know they do. <laughs> I never did. Like, anything, I, I never did anything on Southern Africa on TMBS. That is, that is um, not my field, and I do not feel confident talking about. Southern I've had guests on my show on Africa, uh, Chinese relations. Who the I English and Sicily. Okay, the English in Sicily, like, well, I don't know much about it, but I was reading History Today a couple of years back, and they had an article about, like, the the time, like, Sicily nearly became part of the Union, which was super interesting, but, you know. Uh, Dwayne Moreau on, GP, uh, on chat GP. I, I, I agree that he has a specialty on that topic. Um, uh, so uh, I don't know that he will come on the show. Um, we'll just leave it at that. Um, so, uh, but I, I would, uh, I think he's, he didn't, he, he talked to Hinwood about that, didn't he? Yeah. No. Yeah, he did, did talk. He? I think he did. I think he talked to Hinwood about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was only, it was less than 10% of shrinking. It was Chinese debt. Um, there's a lot of debt to India and a lot of debt to the IMF, but they're all kind of like how they make deals are all the, like, there's, 
like there's uh, there's international oh, rules there's international right. rules that they have to follow so like there's certain there's certain things that like every power has to engage with i i've been reading that egypt under muhammad ali was keeping up with mm, there's an argument about whether muhammad ali's uh, industrialization process was sustainable in the long term they generally relied on they they did adopt a factory system in egypt during that time but their industry re primarily relied on animal power there wasn't really a big leap to steam power but of course that industry whatever chance there was was destroyed once muhammad ali of egypt was forced to open up his market to great britain thanks to the treaty of balti liman signed in uh, 1838 so people were asking about the lash book my co-author has been working on her dissertation for two years we were trying to get it done before she had to finish her dissertation and we didn't and now it's been installed um, there's also a couple of scholars now writing stuff on Lash that I need them to finish so I can cite it. Um, so you're probably looking at another year and a half, two years. Uh, but I am thinking about releasing some of the essays, uh, both in audio form. Jig can tell you my raw, my raw, um, Get my raw drafts are real bad. Get Kuba, um, to, get Kuba to do the reading with his. Uh with his uh doom voice you know maybe i should just use chat gpt to like finish the editing <laughs> yeah why not why not maybe maybe chat gpt right so, uh, so gene i've actually done the chat dbp game and every time i ask it to do an essay in the style that i want it on the topic i want it to it can't do it it always gives me nothing like yeah. chat I'm I mean, I'm sure there's people who know how to like use chat GPT, GPT like really well, but like, you know, it's not going to get you a top essay at the moment. You know, you, you'll, you'll get, so it, it'll, you can, you can get an essay that looks like a waffling undergrad out of it, which a waffling, very, very liberal undergrad out of it. Cause chat yeah, GPT liberal, also seems yeah. to have a, 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 a kind of center liberal bias. I guess maybe because the internet does, but I don't know. Like they, they also blame the internet for all the chatbots being racist in the past. So I have no idea. Um, somebody, I saw somebody online did a like did a chat GPT where they create they went across uh 4chan mm -hmm. and they like did put all fed all the 4chan into it and then got the chat GPT to, to create 4chan posts. And uh, like they were really good for champos, really good. Uh, Isn't a waffling undergraduate a B these days? Not in my classes. I demand something from my. But students. you also teach grad students. <laughs> I do teach a lot of grad. I teach a lot of grad students. I, I'm teaching undergraduates. Like I will be. I will be honest. Like my undergraduates have done pretty okay this year, and like you know they're they're working hard, and. I, they're, you know, I read so much reading. crap that I actually like hope that my students use chat GPT, but I hate to tell you uh, a lot of the current students are so denuded about technology. They don't know how to use it. Yeah. That's like, somebody told me a theory that like uh, millennials are actually better at tech than zoomers because like when they had to load up a game, they had to fucking learn how to use DOS. Th these kids only know how to use a phone. They will actually try to type their essays on a phone. Uh, um, Jeez. And also turn off autocorrect. Well, let's be fair to the kids as well. They've also had like a totally barbarized education. Oh, no, it's not the kids' fault. It's 
we have we have intellectually barbarized them. Like I don't blame anyone for like being a, a barbarian in the current society. Um, also, well, I mean, I'll tell you how I stopped. Uh, you know, like Chris Catron and Spencer Land are always going on about the millennial left, and it's like, look, man, you just shush. Right. Yeah, well, what Who the hell's fault is that then, Mr. It's the millennial left. It's like you know weren't you supposed to like educate them and lead them and lead yeah. them to the You know who's worse than the millennial left? Gen X academics. <laughs> what Gen X left? <laughs> what Gen X left? Exactly. I know Kokona Neutron's gonna claw out of space and like and like threaten to fight me every time I say that. But I'm like, what Gen X left? Like Pascal? Doug Lane and me, like, like the regrettable century boys, like that's it. That like we're like all all two hundred of us. Like, yeah, go Gen X. Don't don't, <laughs> don't be blaming us millennials for you for for the you were our teacher. You, are you a millennial? Are you a millennial? Yeah. Mm, I'm older than you, aren't I? Yeah. That's that's. I feel sad now. I think I'm. Am I older than than uh, Deep State too? I think you're the same age as Deep State. Maybe okay. Deep State State is. I'm younger than Deep State. Um. Anyway, but this has Uh, been a pretty fun. This has been a pretty fun cast, and uh, it seems that we had some people watching today as well. So I'm really glad people turned out. We we're trying to on TIR. We're trying to make sure we have stuff on on um, on Wednesday nights too, Uh, and we will have our like. Uh, special programs. We're definitely coming back with gaming materialists. Yeah, we are. Uh, and we want to come back with uh, theorizing with a hammer. Jason will probably be talking. Uh, 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 nailing it down. Theorizing with a hammer is is proprietary of something mm-hmm. I no longer have rights to. Okay, so the the oh look, congressional baseball fan is here. Who's, who, that's oh, a good. That's- uh, is that a reference to the guy who got shot at the baseball game? Anyway, the uh, the. Um, uh, Jason will have pop life soon. He'll be doing his pop life things. He will be doing, uh, and we'll we'll have a mau mau hour at some point. Pascal will find a topic and he will mau mau it to yeah. death. Maybe what does we that mean? What does it mean to mau? I mean, like he's he's not. I'll like be honest. Running... I'll be honest. I I suggested the name mau mau hour. Oh, so so, but like no one's like putting like tires on any on any like abstract concepts and setting them on fire right no 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 no. it's just like i made this like intro video with like some 1950s like british documentary thing with the mau mau oath on it we've had vj prashad on he's been on go check our back catalog vj prashad has been on right uh you know my widow's peak i've had that since i was like freaking 15 which is pretty funny because everyone else in my family is bald. Um, the, yeah. The uh, but yeah, we um, we'll have Mama. We'll have Pop Lives. Yeah, we're gonna try and fill out more things. Has from Infrahead. I can oh make boy. it happen. Oh boy, he was uh, he had a very testy debate with friend of show Asita Bear, our favorite cuddly Stalinist. Um. Oh, th- th- there's a fight between Haz and, and Asitar? Oh, there, there was a debate between Az and Asitar Bear, uh, which I did watch for what I could. It was it was just bizarre. It was a bizarre debate. So I, that, I think debate is, like, is a very loose term. 
Uh, it's a very loose term. So is that like Mecca versus hippie Stalinism versus uh, Mecca style? Is it Mecca, Mecca, Mecca communism? Is that the appropriate term? Yeah, I can't. I I know there's some difference between the Mecca communist and the and the MAGA communist, and I don't really like. I, I frankly don't know what. Like, I apparently I'm not online enough. Um, has appropriated Asatar Bear's doctorate. Ooh, ooh that sounds vaguely homoerotic. But how about um, a foreign policy segment with? Oh my god. Has is a clown, but he entertains me. I I, I like the only thing I've seen of has is that thing with Ashitar Bear because I was like what's going on like uh what's what's a has a has is a I think he's I think his name is Adam or something like that somebody nope. said no nope. no I think that's common knowledge I think like that Vosh guy is called Ian I think that's common knowledge too uh you know like anyway they're bloody public figures you know what I mean uh yeah infra has I don't really know too much about him beyond like his fight with Astabeth. And uh, yeah, I, I can't get behind Stalinist on Stalinist violence. I just feel that's like, that's just against left unity. Wait, wait, but never mind. I'm going to shut up. I'm about this. No, go for it, Van. Go for it. It's like late at night. It's like 11 04 where you are. In Stalinist on Stalinist violence, like the history of ML politics. <laughs> like, like, isn't that like the Sino Soviet split, really? Like, <laughs> oh, v v Vash, you know, like Vash is orders of magnitude worse than has. Ooh, I mean, Peter like, Zihan is just Gen X Vash. <laughs> damn, that's I have to say, I do find Vash. Uh, um, I'm not sure what his specialization is. Let's just put it that way. I don't want to get into fight with streamers, but you know, like Gundam communist. There we go. Uh, Make a Stalin Stalinist oh my God. This is the last thing in the world I want to do. Let's fight sectarianism by encouraging one thing we don't really do on TIR, and like I'll be straight honest with you, is debates. And I'll tell you why we don't do debates because debates usually don't clarify anything, at least in this format. Like if you have extended exchanges in writing, I find that more useful, right? And uh, but like the like often I think like the debate format, which I'm not saying it's entirely useless, and I, you know, uh, I just find it it just comes down to who presents better, right, and not necessarily down to the arguments. You know what I mean? I think it becomes it becomes a. I watched Stephen Molyneux wipe the floor with leftists, even though Stephen didn't make a single coherent argument the entire time. <laughs> Yeah, like, so like we don't do we don't do debates. It, you know, like TIR, we do fun stuff. We try to be fun a little bit. Not like Vaughn, who who never wants to be fun. He comes. No, to fuck fun. Yeah, but <laughs> like, um, we, we 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 try to be fun, but we really don't want to get into the kind of um, into the kind of like debatosphere because I just like. My biggest criticism of the debate thing, and this is not the case with everybody, is like a lot of debates are two people who don't really know very much about the things that they're talking about, debating with them about them with absolute confidence. Like I don't know Dylan Burns, and I don't, I don't like, I don't know much about Dylan Burns. I don't know much about Has, but I don't know like, is there even the most famous 
on the Jordan Peterson versus Tijek debate, I'm like, I don't think I learned anything about Marxism the whole fucking time. Like, I just learned that Peterson hasn't read it, and yep. Zizek has, but he isn't talking about it. And <laughs> it was so bad. It was it's so bad. I just, I just don't, I just don't find them. So it's debates for nerds. I mean, it's not even about cool. I just don't see the utility of it. I don't see debate like the, the this kind of debate. It it seems very much like what de, uh, what Jason talk, talks about, like the kind of kayfabe wrestling, right? And like I'm all for like you know being trying to be funny, not always being dour and serious. Nobody wants to watch, you know, you know, nobody wants to watch a program that is like overly serious and dour all the time, right? Uh, oh. Whether, uh, but also like this is dangerous it, for my brand, G. Well. <laughs> You do, you do your serious shows and then you do your shouting shows, right? Where you come on the camera and you shout at people for being bad. Laughing. Yeah, it's funny. And then somebody... they become your patrons and then you can shout at them in your... This way, I, I don't shout at my patrons. My patrons shout at you. They do shout like, at me. Like... But, but, um, but yeah, like, so, you know, we try... That's why we do interviews, right? That's why we do interviews. Like, and I'll tell you one thing, to be honest, like, Hundred percent. If we started just doing podcast drama, right? Like this podcast is this thing, and this podcast said that, we'd be doing way better. So I'm going to answer one question, and then I'm going to shut up. Jay, uh, neoliberalism in Lash changes its meaning. In the 1980s, Lash means what we all mean by it. He means the emergence in uh, public-private partnerships and the re in the removal of workers from the. From the table in those private-private partnerships, i.e., the end of Fordism, the beginning of neoliberalism. Um, in the '60s, what he means by it was trying to reinvigorate classical liberalism with socialist, populist, and progressive ideas that were not actually originally part of the liberal tradition, but that were kind of ad hoc into it by FDR. So that's when he—that's what he meant by it in his early books. In his later books, he means what we all mean by it. And the difference is that he's those early books are written in the 60s before the the modern definition was common. And he was just using Neo to point out that there had been a shift in, in liberalism. Um, yeah. So always that's what careful. he meant. Always be careful with your times. Well, it's pretty light. And yeah, so I'm, I'm I've also been working. I, I ha guys, I, I actually work from eight to eight today. So I, I, I've been working all day, but you know, hanging out with you and Kuba invigorated me. Uh, you know, invigorated my spirit, my mind, my my body. Uh, I'm going to go home, chug some Zequil, hit the hay, and get up in the morning and maybe do some cooking, and then go back to work. I have to do another twelve hour, uh, twelve hour day tomorrow, so. Well, yeah, me and Sarah have to do like uh, you have so, kids. You always have like yeah. So we tag in and tag tag out. Like uh, you know, it's like we've got to split the time between like okay, you're on with the kids for this five hour stretch where you can go into the office, and then I'll make sure the baby doesn't do anything and cook the food. Then Sarah comes home, I go into the, so it's like I thought you were about to say you were going to cook the baby, Gene, and I was like, no, I would never. 
The <laughs> baby has recently learned to climb. Yeah, I'm still at the office this late. I was basically working in the office from like I did some errands this morning because my dog jumped over my fence and chased away the postman. And I and so I had to go to the post office to pick up my post, which included a new frying pan. And then I came back, I had to purchase a cabbage, and then uh, I went into the office and I wrote a meeting agenda. I prepared a lecture and I wrote, what else? I did another thing that took a lot of time and was very boring. I probably wiped it from my mind. And then five minutes before the show, I jumped on and uh, the boys came in town. The, the, the boys are back in town and we kept it real. So we didn't do a, we didn't do a champagne room night because, you know, we did it all for free. And so Mad Dog 2020, I don't drink that stuff. I only drink special brew. Okay, so guys, you've been beautiful. You've been fun. Make sure tune in tomorrow. It's a big Adolf Reed uh, uh, episode. Vaughn, what do you have coming up on the Vaughn blog? Holy shit. Uh, I have uh, video essays on Lash, Michael Sandel, Baudrillard, the, uh, the, the rational kernel of the PMC thesis, uh, the administrative state uh why tech layoffs are not social contagion and why that word doesn't mean anything i have interviews coming out with jason miles uh stefan bertram lee um uh jeremy gross and a really really good one with adnan hussein on the on the context of ibn um khaldun and and islamic hate north africa and the beginning of you know the idea of whiteness um when we talk for three fucking hours that comes out next week so i'm looking forward uh, to watching that one you know i don't get much time to watch podcasts these days or youtube videos i usually go home and fall asleep to a cooking video but i'll be definitely tuning in for that one and uh yeah and maybe vaughn has been looking for a co-host maybe people want me to be the co-host anyway with that we are out <laughs>